Hey, Internet, you know, the world could end today. Hey, Internet, you know what? I've been doing a lot of thinking, a lot of thinking, and trying to figure out what my primal archetype is. That is, if I'm going to grab a picture of someone to be, right, a model that I'm going to follow, someone to mimic or imitate, which I'm pretty convinced at this point that every man needs to do that. Pretty sure every woman needs to do it too because men and women are quite similar being human and all. But I'm talking to the guys for a moment here. Every man needs to grab like this this archetypical man who you are going to try to be. And I've been like, okay, who is it? You know, it's not going to be Churchill, right? Uh, so <laughs> who, who could it be? And I, I figured it out. I've got two options actually. Uh, one of them is Lionel, you know, and the other one is Matthew McConaughey in the movie, in the movie, only this movie, in the movie, Reign of Fire. And here's what's really important is that you don't even need to figure out what any of that means to know that I'm never going to be either of those guys. But that I am a man baptized into Jesus Christ and therefore aware that he, regardless of what I want to be, is risen from the dead and that that justifying, vindicating reality of God acting to save all of creation has been extended to include me by virtue of him saying so. So that now I get to know every day of my life when I wake up in this veil of tears and can't stand trying to figure out who I am again, I get to know that I'm immortal now because I'm in Jesus. And I get to know then that he's, he's not even going to be long now. And you can look at that a couple of different ways. You, you can say, well, it's been a long time since his coming and many have fallen asleep and there clearly hasn't been a worldwide flood, although we might have one if we don't handle global warming. Thank you, Papa. Goodness gracious. He won't be long now. Uh, most of us aren't going to be around more than 100 years, so you only got a little bit of time until you're going to face something called judgment. Yeah. And then in terms of the resurrection, well, who knows? As he counts slowness. You guys, you all want to argue about evening and morning and debate whether or not death was here before the fall with a bunch of pagans so you can call yourself scientists. Ah, forgive me. You know the electron's a myth? You ever, you ever figure that one out? That's a fun one. Go to the very bottom of chemistry and realize that it's all sort of a story. It works until you get into strength there. It, 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 it seems to, mm, yeah, 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 hold it all together. Hold it all together. I want to talk about less my cosmology, which is increasingly based upon the book of Genesis. So if you don't like what I just said there, it's like, well, I read Genesis and I'm starting to do it in Hebrew and it's a little different than, say, Newton. Yeah, it just it doesn't have the same ring as Newton does. It's not that Newton is wrong. You can measure the speed of a ball going down a, a, a trajectory and find your margin of error. I mean, I, I did all that. I've experienced all that. I know how that works. Okay, that's fine. Right. Okay. But like in terms of that explaining, like what's going on inside my head as a human in my 40th, 40th, my fourth decade with five spawn I've got to feed in the world around me, like half zombie, but refusing to admit it and more umbrage than anything. I mean, what, what am I supposed to do there, right? Okay, so what I do, again, is I'm going to go back to Genesis and say, <laughs> say uh, look, I'm not going to debate evening and morning. I'm pretty confident it, it was six days as God counts it, and, and that worked out just fine, and now we have weeks as a result of then him adding that seventh. So if you want to debate the week with God, you go for it. Um, it's more to me about the cosmology of the thing. It is, what is reality really? Is it only the empirical world? Is it only the stuff I can touch and see and taste? Because that's everything for the last 500 years in terms of operational procedures for Western Civ is like what you can touch and see and taste. The empirical world has been the dominating thing, and that's what's collapsing around us. The empirical world is demonstrated to be incapable of solving the human soul, the human psyche. We've even gotten rid of the word. We talk about psychology. 
Words of the soul. Words of the soul is what that word means. Words of the soul. Psychology. So I mean, we've been doing it without any belief there really is a soul. That the, the man is just this chemical animal moving around with equivalent exchange going on between all the particles and nothing we can't see going on. And so string theory. I mean, again, if, if you haven't looked into it, the problem with physics does not necessarily like fix my complaint about, say, how you know uh, um, the electron is an issue, right? But what it does is it shows how modern physics have, has reached a dead end, and the dead end is such that uh, there is no going forward here. <laughs> uh, they're wrong. <laughs> and, and that's what the book basically says. Most people since Einstein are wrong, and Einstein didn't fix it. It's, there's still a problem there, and we're looking in the wrong places. So anyway, the problem with physics, um, it, I, I'm not assuming that I'm right or that he's right or anything like that. What it's done for me is it's given me the freedom to increasingly question the mythologies that are from far away. So in my world, I hear lots of stuff, lots and lots of stuff. I've heard so much stuff in my life. I can't stand anymore. I'm trying to like become a monk from hearing stuff. I don't want to hear stuff anymore. (laughs) I don't want to see stuff. I just want to think about all the stuff I saw for 40 years. Whoa, it was a lot. It was a lot. Oh my goodness. And so I see it so much so that I've just distracted myself with talking about how much I have to process for the last 40 years. Uh, uh, so now I've, now I've lost the trajectory. Goodness gracious, Jonathan. Well, I'm going to go back on to then. This is really the real point then, I think, ultimately, that you must, oh, here it is. You must find the mythology that isn't a mythology in your life, right? So you know about Gondor, right? And you know about like a galaxy far, far away and the force and stuff, right? So that's all really neat, but none of it's true. Like, not even a little bit, really. Like, you could say all the stories are true, like, from a moral thing. There's some sort of, like, you're right. There's actually a worship going on in most of these stories of some kind, some sort of religious teaching going on. But the fact is, you live in a place where you have so many religious mythologies running around, calm stories, whatever you want, and they're, like, not all true. But over time and by being under the water of it so much, how do you know the difference? I mean, how do you, where is that? I have a card here on this one, actually. Where is it? What's the difference between Gondor and England in real life? Really? If England still runs the world, which they have enough money to, it seems. I mean, just, quibono, uh, uh, bueno, that's all I'm saying. Is, uh, but <laughs> if they run the world, you know how they do it. Uh, they planted California before California planted California. Uh, a grand story, this, this is, uh, this, this Gondor, this West uh, and so the, the myth of what it means to be the West is very much in the center of what it means to be England. And what Gondor represents for American nerddom is some sort of hope that America is, in fact, that West. And so, you know, England is still running the show in terms of its mythology with the Western world. That's that's a supposition, a hypothesis. So you can disagree with me about that if you like. I'm not really trying to say this like thus saith the Lord or anything. Right. It's but it's a teaching moment. Right. To see that. The lore of Gondor is more well-known than the lore of England. And that is, in fact, then a heritage running our civilization as mythology, which was Tolkien's intention, by the way. And thank God he curbed us with a good myth that wasn't about how we should like, drink each other's blood and sacrifice infants to atone for our sins, right? Like, he could have done that, right? And that would have been popular, maybe? Probably wouldn't have been. I think the Lord works in these ways. But I'm not saying that, therefore, what Tolkien did was necessarily 
write for us either. He wrote a narrative of his time, a memoirs of sorts, contemplating his own reality and the fall, really the fall of the pre-modern world, the complete loss of spirituality and life and the, the collapse of it into what World War I actually did to men. Thousands and thousands of men just meet, thrown at these machines that just tore them to shreds and they're like, oh, we'll do more, we'll do more, we'll do more because they didn't know what they were doing. And he has to live through that and process that and all he can envision is nostalgia. All he can envision is going back to a world that was so dark it was about to die but it was better than ours and so we can like be hobbits and stuff, right? And again, I think that many Americans uh, across the board, whether you like Gondor or not, whatever whatever your mythology is that you're, you know, Twilight, you know, we're hanging on to these lores, these these ideas and stories as some form of like hope for the present. Because we need in the present to hope for the future. And what we Christians have not realized is that means we've stopped hoping in the actual future that we know is certain. And that's where the lore of Gondor becomes your enemy the moment that it's more important than, say, I don't know, who's Jeconiah? Uh, <laughs> Jehoiachin? Let's try that one on for size. Second book of Hezekiah, have you checked it out? Right? Like, that's kind of the issue right there. And, yeah, I did a circle or two. I did a circle or two. But here, here's what I want to say. I want to say this, though. This is really important. I do not think we are anywhere near the end of the world, even though every day I do my best to sit in my prayers, while I'm working with my psalms, my sons of Solomon psalms, you should certainly check them out. Uh, when I'm working with my sons of Solomon psalms, I do my best to have a moment where I imagine a couple things all at once. First, I try to imagine the end of the world happening, like then, boom, exploded. This is awesome. Wow, we're alive. There's Jesus, right? Like, like that's, it's a fun thing to contemplate in the morning if you can bring yourself to say, okay, now, like, what if right this second now, right, right, just, and you push all your eschatology into that if you can. Um, so I, I do that, and I usually will try, if I can, every day. No one can do everything every day. I want to. I pray for moments in that where then I also can remember my Lord's crucifixion. And as a man, kind of sit there and contemplate, like, ouch, that, ouch, right? Like, I'm, I'm being really subtle on this thing here. But <laughs> uh, but there's something very valuable for your piety in being like, okay, he did that, wow, and I could, if he told me to, for him, wow, that's true, Lord, I'd rather not. But then again, I just kind of envisioned it as a possibility, and I feel stronger for the fact. So I do those things every day, even even though I don't believe we're actually anywhere near the end of the world. And I've said this before. I'll say it in preaching uh, again, I think. You know, I've, I've lived in the in what I thought was very clever <laughs> uh, belief that since everyone before us thought it was the end of the world and Jesus says no one knows the day or the hour, that therefore we're, we're kind of not at the end of the world or weren't evidently. And so I should probably stop thinking I am if I want the world to end. Huh? Like I'm going to strong arm him that way. But it's like, oh, look at me. I found the, I found the black arrow or whatever. And... Um, I think that um, I think this is folly. It's just American thinking. That's my childhood. You know, it's that's TV talking through me about the Bible. Um, the real important thing to do is to acknowledge that if Jesus does not come back, all that you really still have is today. If you can figure that out, then planning ceases to be the idol it tends to be, um, and it becomes prayer. <laughs> really instead uh, that all you really have is today to handle the future and that anything that's going to come after today is a again a myth as part of a great story that you're telling yourself for hope in order that you might feel secure 
And again, so much of the last year is the great myth we had joined in. Many of us uh, had has has hole popped in it. Thanks be to Jesus for it. So we could like remember, oh, there's look at all these stories. And again, come back to what your real myth is that you're actually living in your life. And hopefully you find it. It's, Bi- it's the Bible, right? You find it as Jesus at the bottom of that. You're like, oh, thank God. I'm worshiping Jesus after all this. <laughs> Uh, and then, you know, to, to grab that, to seize it, like, you know, to seize the righteousness of Jesus with, with both hearts, you know, your mind, your heart, your spleen, whatever. You know, the, the Bible has so many different ways of talking about the inner workings of the man, and no one's really figured out how to make it into a modern diagram yet. But the fact is that you're, you do have a believing spirit. You are a Christian, and you're a flesh st- sitting here, you know, born like the zombies. And, and that's a reality where do you build on that now, right? So, like, you remember, okay, 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 so that part's real. I know I'm in Jesus, but then, wow, that's a big book with a lot of stuff in it. I haven't looked at that for a while. And look at these these confessions I've sworn to, which, by the way, I, I do continue to uphold my confessional subscription. But I want, you, I want you to go on this journey, right, of, of having to rethink from the font, right? Not from suppositions, not from who you know, not respecting persons per se, although you certainly may judge the fruit of a teacher, sure. Um, but uh, to go back and ask, what does the scriptures really say about what I believe with regard to my Americanism? And that's what I've been doing, right? With regard to my Americanism, um, with regard to my institutional congregationalism, right? The, uh, what I see as the, the panoply of American churchism, you know, what does that ecclesiology in practice have to do with the Bible? Or how does it overlap with or look like what it might have been to be Christians in, say, Rome or Jews in Babylon or maybe just uh, Jews being invaded by the Philistines? You know, and, and what does it look like now? It's a different kind of invasion, I would say. They're not really using sources. They're using blue light. Blue light and a lot more science than we got on our side. I mean, tell you that uh, we, we've been puppets on a string i think but okay okay okay. so but what i want to say about this is like who cares i don't think we're anywhere near the end of the world but if it got that bad god would end the world jesus has promised that i mean the, even the days for the sake of the elect the days will be shortened and it's about the destruction of jerusalem but you really should take from that the comfort that you, you're not going to have it get so bad you fall away quite the other way around you're going to have it get so bad that you believe more <laughs> You know, I've, I've said this before, too, uh, somewhere else, and um, I know there's a few people out there that are big Mass Effect fans, uh, the original video game series. And for, you know, as a person who's increasingly not using these things, these pastimes, for my own sake, for my own decision making, I don't want anyone to think that, like, somehow, therefore, I have, like, put all of it into the fire pit and, like, lit it on fire and, and sang songs to God while I danced around it to show my righteousness or something like that. Uh, I, I consider everything that I've watched, movies, video games, all that, to be part of what has brought me to where now is a bit of a, again, I've pulled back from this stuff so hard, uh, one who can now have an, a perspective of a both and. And I really I really like that. So in that, in the Mass Effect series, uh, which is a three-game series with a single story arc, I, I've never seen it done. Maybe there's other series out there that really pull it off like this, but it has a single story arc through three games. Same character that's you, but also Commander Shepard is his name. And by the end of the thing, you and your team, who you've grown with through this long, I think of it as a movie book experience that's just all one long thing, like 80 hours, 90 hours, 100 hours. And you're, so you are Commander Shepard at this point. I mean, you really are, whoever you are. You, you're living this guy's life. And um, you're brought to this point where these super aliens are back. These like It's like the devil came with all his demons from space to like make us pay for electricity. And uh, honestly, that's kind of the story, in fact. Um, it's just it's, they don't call it the devil. 
call them the Reapers or whatever. Um, but it's, it's the same thing. And, and then it's the same devil is seeking unity uh, with the human species, which is really, again, a fascinating thing. But you as the main character are then brought to a point where it's you're lost. It's lost. It's all over. It's like you and seven people. <laughs> and there's like the final shot that they're doing to blow up the earth or whatever is in front of you. But you and your seven people run at it anyway and that moment and the music's going and it's, your thing's shaking and you can feel it going past your face and you're like oh, I'm gonna die and you actually it all blacks out now that's living that's why you play the game why do we play life the opposite as Christians that's what I want to know why do we play life the opposite why do we want it not to get bad out there so we can have an easy life, so we can have more pride and discontent like the scriptures say we will whenever we have easy lives? I mean, it's just not, we're just not believing what the scriptures say about our lives you know? and who we are as flesh. There's so much there for us to see. I've been, I've been yelling at you about the Proverbs forever, right? Um, forever, for a year at least. Uh, you got to get into those things. They will revolutionize the way you think, work, and act among the pagans. They will change the way you see. You'll be able to go, oh, I see what's going on. They're all fools. I get it. Oh, but this, it's like, like they're fools like I hate them. It's like they're, they're blind. They're, again, a zombie is a good way to describe it, although they're not trying to feast upon your neck. Right? Instead... Uh, they are they're feasting upon your spirit, and by justifying themselves with their lives and their worship and asking you to join them, they suck your spirit into theirs. The devil's sucking it all away, as opposed to filling you up the way Jesus does, uh, with word, with sacrament, with truth, with promise, with hope that does not disappoint because hope always brings her friend joy. Long, yes. So I don't think we're anywhere near the end of the world. I don't think we're anywhere near a ground war. I don't think we're anywhere near an ultimate pandemic and famine. I think we're in a collapsing regime scenario, much like Dr. Kuntz and I have been talking about on A Brief History of Power, wherein you just want to kind of be in a place where there's going to be less looting going on, and the looting is not going to be with guns pow pow, although it kind of is, but like there's fencing with the guns, right? So the national guns and fencing extend borders in areas that they control, and gradually the society right around that gets looted, right? Um, And that... That reality, you can see it in Baltimore. Right? You can see it in D.C. See it in Seattle. You can see it in Portland. Um, and so just to realize that's going to increasingly go on in various city-states, the more you can think of yourself not as living in a nation, even though we do all have this thing called the citizenship of the United States of America, and I am a citizen of the United States of America, and I will defend the republic. Um, I pledge allegiance to the flag still, and the republic for which it stood still. Um, <laughs> uh Oh, I just don't like talking like that. I don't even like thinking in, uh, about what that means. But you need to, again, distance the long away story of this national power that basically takes money from you every year and then doesn't do much else for you other than make like difficult by faraway laws that then everyone else has to apply to you. The reason why, in theory, there was a revolution. But I don't, I don't care. I mean, I'm not into the whole like, let's go back and revolt again. You're not going to be able to stop what's going on. But what you can see is it looks a lot. Get out of like the modern assumptions about what's going on and look at it instead as city-state alliances. Uh, pretend that you're living in like Mediterranean era. No, Mediterranean era. Koine Mediterranean era. Um, pretend you're living in pre-Hellenistic or Hellenistic or Roman Mediterranean area. And you have, instead of like um, this this real true unity anywhere, even Babylon and Persia would have been like this. It's just conglomerations of subjugated city-states often trying to rebel themselves. And if you can see that that's the United States, that that's Europe, that that's you know what used to be Russia, uh, that they're, they're 
over large city-states that extend their claims of territory to certain places where other city-states will fight them or will band together to threaten to fight them, right? So if you come this far, then we together will do this. If you, if you kind of see it more like that, then the most important thing at the moment is not what's going to happen in the United States. Will there be a ground war here? I mean, there could be, but those are expensive and the money's kind of run out of everywhere, I think. I really do. Um, I, I, maybe I'm wrong, you know, the debt cycle, but um, I, oh my. Uh, every eight years, we're supposed to have one of these little swims, and, and we, we haven't. We haven't had one yet. It's kind of nerve-wracking, actually. I, I, anyway, that's that's a different thing. Don't listen to me about money, I swear. Um, and I can't promise you there won't be a ground war. I'm just saying what looks more realistic to me, like from human history, where you have to supply troops far away and things like that, what looks more realistic is that we're going to have our city-states fighting between themselves more and more, not with ground troops, but with words and with kind of the loss of control of populaces, right? And so some some territories are going to build up and get stronger, and some territories are just going to continue to, to loot and pillage. Um, now, long-term, that can have really big impacts, but why do I say this now? Okay. Because I want to say that what that looks like for everybody, no matter where you are, unless you're one of the elite pillagers, uh, what that looks like for everybody is slow generational impoverishment. What does that mean? I mean, they've been telling us this for years as, as Gen Xers. Like, well, you're not going to live to the standard of living of your parents. You're probably, you might live further, but you're not going to have as much money as they do. And that's been around, what, 20 years now they've been saying that? And so, yeah, this is inflation is the magical, mythical economic thing that they say that makes this all okay. Um, is that it's, it's generational impoverishing. If you stay where you are within the system, you will be poorer later. And as uh, Dr. Kunz and I talked about on Thursday, this is effectively a hundred year move towards slavery. Uh, indentured servitude, that kind of thing. What, what slavery was always in human history usually is the normal state of human history. Uh, working for the man's been around for a long time. The U.S. is just, you know, what you call it. So much of the modern mythos is what you call it. Do you believe that this is a religion around you? Or do you believe that empiricism is right and God's really far away and doesn't have much to do with it? The more you can, again, look at it as a religion, a religion which seeks to subjugate, a religion which seeks to, to, to set up God kings who for their own sake at least are able to believe that they're safe because we're all seeking that. And they got enough power to actually start to suck the life out of people, push them down to push themselves back up. Um, we would all do it in their place, I think, which is the problem of being sons of Adam. That reality should be expected to continue throughout history till Jesus returns. Unless and where good men in localities don't let it happen. Right? And I would say that that starts by praying. Good men in localities. Now, you can have good men who pray to false gods who actually defend their wives and children. It's, it's true. Um, but I think that as Christians, the real defense of our wives and children isn't to go out and get a bunch of you know, pitchforks. <laughs> uh, it's, to, it's to get back to our altars and take care of them as if they matter. To remember that church is there to be church and not some other thing with a bunch of other frivolities thrown around to hopefully attract the pagans to give us a little more money so we can keep our big doors open. Instead, what we want is a place where we can come and pray to the true God and not be muzzled for it, where we can come and actually receive from the true God his living flesh and blood according to his institution, where the, the fellow shape that we take amongst each other as brothers who believe that Christ is risen from the dead, us and our families with us as if somehow a brotherhood with their families were bad. Why do I have to feel bad for saying that? So that a brotherhood can stand together looking for Jesus with our families. I mean, th that to me seems like something you still can do day by day right now. And we have very good ground for establishing bubbles. Monasteries is wrong. 
Monasteries is wrong, but you got to think of it as like a place where the proximate influence of your Christianity still exists in a world where that doesn't, right? So in dark ages, what the monasteries were, were they were shelters of civilization in a very dark world. There were places where there were still libraries. I don't think that we got to go back to monastic rule per se, um, but we do got to go back to some sort of I'm not like everybody else and can't just do what they do and think what they think and read what they read and, and assume that I'm so strong it won't impact me. Uh, or or I got to recognize that along with the impoverization of my financial temporal reality, which I may be unable to avoid because the powers that be are what they are and God's ultimately the author of all of these things, uh, in spite of that, right? What I don't want is the impoverization of my soul. And that's where the trade-off to be an American, I really got to tell you, we have a lot less soul. We really do. We just sell it to people. I'm like, come to America and sell your soul. Here you go, a little bit there, a little bit there, and you'll be better off. You can have coffee as often as you want. That's right. Um, I mean, it's, don't get me wrong. I'm proud to be an American, or at least I know I'm free or something like that. But, but something like that. What I really am most concerned about for all of us here in the United States, in New Zealand, in Canada, where you know, English, speakers are, English speakers are listening, uh, um, uh, Finland, Sweden, Germany, uh, some others from uh, Southeast Asia from time to time, the impoverization of the human spirit by the demands of the technological word, world upon us, founded upon the promises of what that technology will provide for us in terms of calm and quiet and joyful life, that should be demonstrably seen as something we got to back away from a little bit, right? That we got we got to kick back on this thing some. Uh, I said it before, I'll say it again. You know, it's like the Matrix. You know, you 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 have to start thinking about. And I have to. I recommend you start thinking about your time with blue light, particularly after dark, particularly after dark, as like going into the Matrix. Like you can do it. You're skilled. You're talented. Right? Okay, fine. But like, how much you want to do that when you're Neo and Agent Johnson's actually there? Right. And I'm not just talking about the stories. I'm not just talking about the power of the white noise, although there is something to that, like the amount of stuff that's coming in. How can you process it all and really deal with it psycho spiritually? Right. Psycho spiritually. Soul spiritually. I have to say that. Right. That's how that's how imperial we are. E.M. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm going to shift back here because we've got other stuff coming up today. But I, I really think it's so important. Um, the world could end today but not the way most people are afraid of and in a way that should bring you great hope but because given the history I think we can say the Lord may tarry he may should he will then should he will it let us and let us pray right and then let us having prayed seek to do today without believing that we need to plan so far for tomorrow I'm convinced of that, no, that in this, it's less about striving to see a faraway future and more about seeing your neighbor, your neighbor again, your neighbor who is that one that is like nearest to you right now. Hey, I got a special guest coming on at 10 o'clock this morning. I want to make sure we get time for that. Lots of questions from you. So we'll be back in just a moment. Alrighty then. We're going to go right into questions from you all. And at 10 o'clock, special guest Jacob coming in. I won't tell you why, but um, it should be all right. It should be a good time. Yeah. All right. So Cafe Sola, he, uh, he loves to ask the questions in the sidebar, and I love to miss them. But thank you. You keep asking. They'll keep coming in. we got two of them here. Uh, after being baptized as an infant, do you have to give your life to Jesus? I love it. You know what, though? I mean, 
so much of this is babble. So much of this is just us misunderstanding, and it's true, uh, Cafe, don't get me wrong, that the language is sloppy, and sloppy language leads to error. It really does, and error leads to unbelief, because error is the devil's lie. So you don't want sloppy language, you want, you want clean language, you want simple language, you want biblical, right? Sound is the word in the Bible, healthy language. So, you know, giving your life to Jesus is language that in English has been used to mean all sorts of stuff um, and generally also kind of means like infant baptism's evil. Sorry. So if you talk that way, you don't like infant baptism, right? And so, so for me to talk that way is kind of like, well, that's, that's kind of, you know, mm, giving ground, right? Giving ground. But at the same time, here, here's this reality. An infant who is baptized, this, this is just the reality. I'm just going to talk in English now as if we don't have a bunch of history that we've got to deal with. Right? So uh, a baptized baby is going to give his life to Jesus. He's, he's already been given to Jesus, first off. Like the, the baptism is like, here, God, have our baby, Jesus. Have our baby. Jesus takes the baby. Yay! Okay? Like that, that's what we believe. You're all doing dedications, and like he gave you baptism. <laughs> it's just nuts. Anyway. Um, <laughs> but uh, so that's happened. Uh, so the baby's born from above, as, as Jesus says, and, you know, resurrected, given the Spirit, all this stuff. Look up baptism in the Bible. You'll find all that language. Um, it's really there, always. Uh, so being given to Jesus, being promised these things, being born from above, then that means this new life born from above needs to eat, needs to eat. And so the baby needs to be fed truth about, about Jesus, about the scriptures, about everything that the Bible says, basically. I mean, really, just starting with the scriptures would be great. You know, the catechetical faith that the scriptures teach, that, that's a good place to go. And the fact is that having been born of the Spirit and being fed by the Spirit via the Word of God, the baby's life already given to Jesus, the baby's just going to believe his life belongs to Jesus if you tell him it. You only have to think, oh, I have to give my life to Jesus because he'll just know. His life belongs to Jesus. And it's like, but that means that every single day he's like, hey, Jesus, what's up? I belong to you. He's actually going to do that. So he will actually give his life to Jesus all the time, constantly praying continuously as Paul exhorts us to. It's all Christians ultimately do. So to like get in this like, well, have you done it enough or did you do it at the right time? And is it really baptism that does it? And we're like, are you ready to let the devil ruin us? I mean, are you watching? I'm not talking to you, Cafe. I'm talking to the the others because they're the ones who, um, are, you know, they, they reject the infant baptism, and it's as a result of that that we have to say your language about giving your life to Jesus it hurts our feelings. It makes us feel sad when you talk that way. I would rather you would talk about how Jesus saved you. That makes me feel happy. Then talk that way instead, right? But then, well, then how do I talk about what I'm going to do now? Oh, oh yeah, following your Lord, I guess. I don't, I don't know. That probably has problems too. And this is another issue then, Cafe. So here's where we got the problem. I'm at the point where. Everything I can say, orthodox, has now been said in a heterodox way by somebody. And if I keep up the game, that's been the Lutheran game of, therefore, don't say it that way, I have to start not saying things. I think we've already been doing this for a time, actually. And so I'm kind of like, you know, it's time to take the words back. So after being baptized as an infant, do you have to give your life to Jesus? On the surface, as that reads, absolutely not have to do anything. Jesus is going to do something for you, though. Your life been given to Jesus. You're going to receive your life from Jesus, and uh, well, I, I guess you'll offer it back. You know, the sacrifice of praise, prayer, thanksgiving. I mean, what are you going to do? Like, like commit seppuku on the altar? He doesn't need that. So what does it even mean to give your life to Jesus? Biblically speaking, it means to believe in him, right? So yes, after being baptized, you will 
this this have to language is caught up in needing to justify yourself and needing to justify yourself is caught up not so much even in the idea of justification as Jesus or Jesus plus me is the winner right that's kind of where it's at deep down in your soul okay so anyway not talking to you again cafe and I know where you're at um, so he asks this question as well what if one pastor uses ESV and another uses the NLT well he's just wrong <laughs> And another uses the NIV. Well, he's really just wrong, you know. But the ESV guy's only kind of wrong. Um, in the same congregation, your your question is like, so what if you have three pastors in a big church and they all use different English translations? Like, what's the, what's the result of that? I got two answers for you. Do they all use the Greek primarily? Then it's not a problem. If they are not using the Greek primarily, and so they're not aware of how they're talking to each other and how the congregation's hearing what they're saying, it could create all sorts of problems. All right. So the issue with your with your English translation, I'm kind of thinking out loud here a little moment, but. And the issue with your English translation, then, if you are reading from the original languages, is is less about what it says and more about how you are understanding what it says in front of people. And that's where in introducing more than one translation being used by the pastors without an intentional, like, but we're all learning Greek together as a congregation, so this is helping, right? Um, it, it, would be, it would be to sow confusion, I think. Um, but if you're doing it to bind through a, a higher level that you actually want the people to get, and that's how I'm, I mean, I'm honestly wanting to do this, Cafe. I, I got one member, maybe two here, who are interested in Greek. I know there was some Greek taught in the area. Um, I'm not sure how to do it yet. I'm not sure the way I do it will be the way everybody wants it done. But I cannot dream higher. I cannot dream higher than to be the pastor of a congregation where 75% of them are like in the Greek text while I'm preaching. I, I could not dream higher than that. I mean, that that, that is... That doesn't seem realistic in humanity. Now, I mean, I guess I go Eastern Orthodox, you know, they do it. They preach in Greek, right? But eh, there's other issues there. Um, <laughs> but so so I can envision a place where this isn't a problem, but by and large, the idea that you would be introducing multiple translations without trying to move further back toward the original um, doesn't seem healthy to me. It seems you would instead just want to say, okay, well, here's what this one means here, and we're going to stick with this because we know it, right? So what you see me doing a little bit as I talk about New King James and comparing it to the ESV in my congregation is because it's already there. So I'm acknowledging it was already there. I've joined a party within it, and what I want us to do is to grow together as we compare those two and let the congregation decide whether or not they're going to stick with ESV or move to New King James. And they have 50 years to make that decision, frankly. So it's not really a big deal. Um, but I don't plan on introducing a bunch of other options uh, into the congregation because, like, like I said before, I mean— and talking about the EHV, which I think is fine. It's a fine addition to the commentary on English translations, but nothing new is going to unite us. Nothing new is going to unite us. It's just not going to happen. It'll unite a small party, which, if that's your goal, by the way, is, is good. We should do that, too. I don't, I don't think we shouldn't do, like, faction uniting. We need to unite as tribes. We need to understand where we stand as tribes. Um, but... Uh, for, for my part then, uh, I'm not in the tribe <laughs> that's anywhere near the EHV at the moment. And I don't know that if I were there, that that's, that's what I would want. I think I'd want to again, work toward if, if I'm going to talk about Bible translation, I want to have in my hand one that everyone else kind of knows and respects a little bit because I'm going to have the Greek with it. Right. And so anytime they start going anywhere, I'm just gonna go straight to the Greek because I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna mess around with it. Um, but uh, in, for that reason, though, you should really, if you're going to learn it, you need to learn one. And as a group, as a body, to have the same memorization pattern, to have the same kind of way of talking, that's valuable, especially in an age of Babel. So I, I hopefully it helps. Again, I'm thinking a little bit, little bit there and trying to do this in real time where we are and, and figure out what it means and all this. I need a drink of water. I'll be um, right back. All right. So Zach says this. 
Oh, it's a big one. Zach says, uh, thank you for your perspective last week. I'm curious if you have any advice on how to best teach the faith. Uh, oh, best teach the faith and the process of catechesis. I am curious because my catechesis was very atypical and not something most people would experience. Lucky you, I, I, where I'm at, by the way, uh, in that we moved several times in the process and I had several different shepherds. That probably was good for you. Um, as much as it was painful, like you had to reckon with what they were actually saying and you couldn't just kind of float through it, right? Um, however, as a future father and future seminarian, it will be my responsibility to teach the faith to the next generation of believers. Yeah, first as a father versus a father, and then, uh, Lord willing, right, uh, in, in the ministry. Uh, my fear with this, however, is that I will not do a good enough job. Well, that, that's a healthy fear to have. You won't. That's kind of a fact. Um, I had, I've had several family members fall away from the faith over the years, and I hear the word of James 3, that those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. If faith is like a torch, I'm scared to pass it to the next generation for fear of it going out. Well, <laughs> that's, that's a problem. That actually is a problem right there. You, no, no, no. You throw it in their face. If they don't want it, then they're going to burn. I mean, that, that, that's more the reality. That's more the reality, man. Um, if, the, the trembling maternal knees um, need to be replaced by a staunch father's backbone, my friend, uh, if you're going to stand where you want to stand. And... Uh, I had, a, I had a member who watches the show, by the way. I, I do want to hat tip this. I'm not going to be able to repeat what she said. It was so good. She said it so well. Um, but she, she said, this is regarding my misogyny, Fisk the misogynist. Um, he, she said that uh, she detects in me, when we talk about these issues, man and woman, uh, she detects in me uh, that there might indeed be anger, but it's not at women. And that's a very important point. Uh, so in fact, what you see is me being a little heated sometimes about, about like the man woman stuff is actually my anger at the men. Like maybe my, my actual grandpa. And that's what I figured out from this. Like my, my actual grandpa, that's who I'm mad at. Ah, it's been, that's like three years old. Wow. Wow. Look at that. Yeah. So, um, owning that, you know, uh, remember that when I'm talking about these issues, ladies, um, I'm not even talking to you. Not because I don't want you to hear it, but I know that for the, the big game future of Christianity in broadcast America, okay? I mean, this isn't just me and my pulpit here either. In Christianity in broadcast America, we got to grab the men right now. We got to. And if we don't, and we don't tell them the issue is you got to stand up and be a man, um, then where they are, they're going to be letting everything be taken away because they're going to be afraid to pass the torch forward rather than like running with the torch into death, which is, you know, what men are made to do. Women are made to herd, to to, to kind of circle and and pull back. And that's a blessing. And men are then made to run out into the wolf and like dive into its mouth and like, like, well, I'm going to die, but my family will live. You know, I mean, this is actually how we would live most if we could believe it. And if the pack with death in America hadn't gotten us so... So afraid and in need of uh, Big Mother. Um, <laughs> big Nanny. Nanny State, Big Brother. I don't care what you call it. Same thing, right? It's the devil all the way at the very top. So, okay. Back to you. Passing the torch, right? Um, you. If you are afraid to pass the torch, let me suggest you haven't realized or do not have the torch to pass. So, what I mean by that is, well, you're just, you're not actually a pastor yet, right? So it's okay to be exactly where you are and struggling and saying, I'd like to serve, but I need to grow a little bit. That's exactly what seminary or the preparation for pastoral ministry should be for. So yes, this is good. By the time 
you are being laying hands on. And if you can get them to let you put your face on the ground when they do it, flat on the ground in cruciform, you are a slave. Now, by the time that that is happening, you better get up and believe that you're from the holy God. Anybody who doesn't like it is just going to have to deal with that. And you know what? You're going to live in a spirit of gentleness toward everyone around you. But when it comes to dealing with the lies, um, you're just not going to have any of it. And you can be, here's the fire. You don't want the fire? The fire can make you alive. The fire can kill you. Which one do you want? I mean, here it is. Here's the fire. There's no blue, red pill. Fire. Catch it. Catch the fire. And, and it's Jesus. He is risen. You are paid for. I mean, it's not like you're actually throwing fire at them. <laughs> but you also have to know you're never going to make them catch it. Each generation will or will not on its own. It has to do with the mystery and miracle of promises to fathers and their children, both bad and good in the Bible. And I'm not going to try to judge Jesus like zeitgeist on this thing, right? Like I should really say, I'm not going to try to judge Jesus' will based upon our sits in Laban and the movements of the zeitgeist. I'm not going to try to get into that. Um, sits in Laban, your place in life, zeitgeist, the wind of the time. Uh, you know, trying to figure out what Jesus really wants for all of us from those two things, that's, that's tomfoolery. That, that is completely backwards. We should find out what he wants from the Sons of Solomon Psalms, from the Gospel of Matthew, or try Mark, uh, primacy in Mark, by the way, I think, uh, or or perhaps John, is, is, you know, he soars above and all that. Um, <laughs> uh, so, know that by the time that you are going to be handed this torch, you are grabbing the torch of God's eternal sword and that you are willing to let them gut you, skin you, flail you, and you're going to say, I forgive you and Father, forgive them for they know not what they do as it's being done to you because that's what the saints before have done and you can't wait because Commander Shepherd is actually what you want to be. <laughs> yeah? Uh, and so now, let me do this one better for you. The moment you have a baby, bam, it's on. You're on. Authority is granted, authority is given, and those who teach will be judged with greater strictness, fathers. Now, James 3 is ultimately about teachers in the church, pastors and teachers, or shepherds and teachers, as Ephesians 4 talks about, these offices given for the church. Pretty convinced James 3 is about that. Um, 1 Timothy 3 also has some things to say. Uh, but that does not mean that, you know, the role of the father of the congregation, the teacher of the congregation, the shepherd of the—I don't care which— symbol you use the king of the congregation i mean they're all the same they're all the voice of the congregation he exists so that the other king's fathers prophets of the congregation all of them everybody's all these things by the way on some level but fathers first that are actually physically fathers so that they will hear this and reflect it in the home and become teachers of the home which is going to get to the question about you know uh confirmation here yeah you know your, your confirmation process your catechesis process and you're you're really concerned about how to do catechesis in the congregation, yeah. And I'm gonna tell you what we've been doing in the congregation is um, spinning wheels in mud is what that's been. Uh, and instead, the issue is ultimately what is the father doing at the home? And these fathers will be judged with greater strictness if they don't even try to pass on the faith to their kids. That's a fact. That's a fact. If you don't even try to pass on the faith to your kids, you'll be judged with greater strictness. And it might be just this: you go to heaven, they don't. Ouch! Ouch! You know, all that you have burns up. Except for you. Oh. Oh. So, I mean, I do not want to put any of you onto the, the rat wheel of thinking you're going to create a better heaven by how hard you work now. But I'm not going to hide from you uh, the salt in the wound, uh, <laughs> which says that if you're just going to say, uh, oh, well, I kind of like it here. Go Cubs. Well, and your kids just don't believe. <laughs> you're going to own it. One way or the other. You're going to own it one way or the other. Um, so, your fears that you will not do a good enough job because of James 3 and all this. 
Um, I also want to tell you though, this is just it. The moment you've been you've been given a child as a father, it doesn't matter whether you're going to do a good enough job. Do a better job now, and then do a better job now. You, you're going to learn. You're going to learn. Nobody is a good father right away. Oh my! <laughs> I, they, some are better than others. Don't get me wrong. But I mean, you are going to run into confusion. And in some ways, you're going to learn how to actually be a human from your kids. Their growth pattern, if you can pay attention to it, like look them in the eye, talk to them even when they don't talk back and like try to build a relationship with them, that growth curve will help you in your own growth curve wherever you are, letting go your childish thoughts and becoming the man you're supposed to be. Now, hard to do that when you're all watching TV together. A lot easier one-on-one in a conversation. Tough to do that without time. Time is a matter of what you make of it, I think, a lot of times. So, uh, you know, how can you teach your family, he says, a future congregation while being confident in my teaching and the knowledge we have been given from Christ, God bless. Well, Pentecost happened, didn't it? That, you got to fall back on that at a certain point. Uh, Pentecost happened. So if you're going to go and you've been sent by the church, you presented yourself to be tested by whatever orders you need to be in because your tradition has that and you don't know any other tradition that you think is right at the moment. You go through those orders and you get a bunch of men who stand around you and say, in the name of Jesus, preach the gospel till you die. Don't take your hand off the plow. Those who look back are not worthy of the kingdom. Um, By that point, man, if you're going to do that, then just go. And if you're wrong and end up in hell, I mean, Praise be to Jesus. And that's actually what you got to say. And then you're fine. You're not gonna, Why worry about it? Jesus is your king. Jesus is your God. Now, if you're going to like not open the Bible and then run around and talk out your, 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 your backside all the time, well, then it's a different reality. But this, um, the, the issue of justification with the heart is less about any one thing you point to and more about whether or not you believe Jesus is your authentic king who died to buy you as his slave. Or not. Like you're actually his slave and on judgment day, you're not going to get judged like, oh no, you're out. No, 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 you're in. And it's going to be so good. And you're looking forward to it. And you want to share it with other people. All these arguments seem to not be about that. Have you noticed that? Um, I'm not against the arguments. The arguments come from a place, and they always come against the scriptures, and so we must stand firm on what the scriptures actually say. But we don't have to argue back with demons. And we don't have to argue back against demonic arguments, I don't think. In that way, again, be confident in the scriptures, Zach. (laughs) Learn your Greek and Hebrew, Zach. Um... If you're not going to learn your Greek and Hebrew, don't preach. Don't preach. Stop. Stop now. It's too late. I mean, we've done it, but it's it's not good. It's not good. Um, it takes small errors and makes them large errors. And what we need right now is confidence. But again, have that confidence then. And this is where laity, you know, your, your basic small catechism, and by that I don't even mean what Luther said, right? I mean the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. I've been, I've been uh, going round and round in a circle over Acts 15 and the apostolic letter from um, the council in Jerusalem to the Christian church because I feel that we kind of ignore it. I feel that we kind of dismiss it as secondary. And I've been digging on a little bit more and there's an early tradition that actually has a pretty strong textual line with a small variant that turns it into the Ten Commandments, which is really kind of interesting. Um, and and I, I say that again only to say that that shows that in like the second you know, century, uh, the Christians were trying to figure out, okay, there's a lot going on. We don't even have a Bible yet, right? They didn't even know that was coming. But what do we believe? The Ten Commandments remained in their hearts. What, what should we be trying to be? What should we be trying to do? And, and then the Lord's Prayer 
has always been around the liturgy of the church as a way to pray for those Ten Commandments to come to be. And so praying the Lord's Prayer as the fulfillment of the Ten Commandments in your soul and knowing this is Jesus' promise to you and that by virtue of your baptism, which you stand on, right? You don't put it on, you stand on it. Um, By virtue of that, you're being sent out in his arms. He's got you. Take the torch, run into the zombies, die with them on fire, and a lot of them are going to convert. You know, a lot of them are going to convert, or at least the right number, the right number. So I I feel like also I want to mention, though, um, when we talk about... Maybe there's another confirmation question coming up. Uh, I'll, I'll save it for that. Just the issue of how we do confirmation is certainly challenging. Um, spinning the wheels, spinning the wheels. And guys who are in it know what I'm talking about. Like, it doesn't matter what you do, how hard you try. You keep some, you don't keep others. My question is then, so why don't we just focus on the ones we're going to keep and the ones that don't want to come? Stop wasting our time, like, trying to hurt. Heard them's the wrong word. You're a pastor, right? They're members. But it's sort of like you're trying to, to cajole them, right? As opposed to saying, like, here, here's the food. Here's, you don't want the food? I have to, like, trick you into eating the food? I, I just, I'm, I'm wondering why we're doing that. Like, what's the end? I know the end. It's because we, we care more about our financial institutions than we care about um, people, ultimately. Because that person that's, we're, that kid that's, like, 10, that we're making sit in that class for two years, who never comes to church otherwise and doesn't know anything else about any of this stuff, like, it's not helping that kid. That kid actually is oftentimes being, in my experience, that kid is being pushed to the corner, ostracized by the group he doesn't know. There's all sorts of like subtle subtext junior high stuff going on, and we're so ignorant of all that. We don't even know what's going on in our world. Um, anyway, I mean, you know this, right? Most kids live a double life. Most kids live a double life. They live a life that, that they live with their peers, which has one form of language, really. And then they have a life that they live with their parents, which has another form of language. And they don't mind lying to their parents about the life they live as kids because they don't see them as the same thing. And this is uh, Hurt is the book. You can find that book. Hurt is the book on this. It's, again, an older resource already. Um, All right, Esther says this. I started listening to the SM Chill videos this month, and they blessed me in many ways. I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad. Thank you. Um, I've started reading my Bible again, yay, uh, after a brain injury, and I've recovered my hunger for truth and also the resurrection. Maranatha, amen. Uh, I've also been convicted in just how singular and worldly the perspective I hear all around me locally truly is. That's where I keep going. I, I feel worse and worse. I'm like, oh, Jonathan, I can't believe how worldly I have been in my own mind. And I just, I just repent myself. Um, and I want, I don't want to point fingers. I just want to, just want to be free from those idols, which I'd put up that you know, they're, they're small. We all got them. Uh, but it's just it. They're heavy. They're heavy. And I'm thankful to be putting them down. It's incredibly freeing. Also, the more Rev Fisk talks about gender, Esther says, um, and the value of men and women as distinct and orderly, the more beautiful I think family is. Amen. That's what God made it, right? Uh, what I'm really missing, though, is how marriage should be considered if a woman be barren or married to a man who is unable to have children, let alone son. Should the pursuit of marriage between one barren and one able to have children be avoided? I'm interested in your thoughts about this because I hope to have a Christian perspective on the issue. Um, so here's, here's my take on that. You will find harder ones, but I don't think mine is an easy one. Um, it's simply to recognize that barrenness is a form of brokenness. Right? So like menopause, Happens to all women. They all go barren at a certain point. And in our modern world, we all assume it's at a certain time. Uh, in the ancient world, it may or may not have been at that exact same time. I don't know. When they lived to be like 800, who knows? Uh, but, you know, it's a barrenness that comes on women. And it is, it is not there to end the marriage. <laughs> uh, uh, it is there for the marriage to have to come to terms with death. They're not, they can't have kids forever because they're going to get too old to raise them. They're going to die. And 
so the way I would look at barrenness now is just you have that hiccup a little earlier in a more awkward way than you expected. But it's the same hiccup that everyone's going to face at a certain point, which ultimately is the brokenness of your body and death. Uh, you, can, you can look at this as, you know, if you get cancer, you, get, you, know, you die from a heart attack, uh, you're barren. It's just part of the curse. Can you pray as a barren woman and have a baby later? Yeah, it actually happens <laughs> and in the modern world. I don't know. I don't know if it's a miracle every time. I think that, again, the modern contention like, well, you're barren because this, that, and therefore never. Well, my, my kids say never and always a lot. And when they're young, too, and something tells me that's not the form of wisdom we're looking for. Uh, And so, you know, if you are barren, there's not a reason to not consider yourself still under God's hand and pray for that gift. Um, With that said, don't make an idol out of that gift. Recognize that in this life, he does and he makes some celibate for life and it's a great blessing to them. And so she who has not born any, uh, she has more children than she was born a handful or however that however the quote goes about Rachel. So, you know, to see that um, the church is your family, um, to see that there are sons and daughters all around, uh, that when a congregation comes together as a village, uh, there is a generational reality, um, which you don't get in the public grade school system where everything's split up by age and and sent out wherever. And so um, in this then, all people have a place, right? All people have a place. And so I would say that a family that is is barren um, after being a family is simply a family that has to wait for the resurrection to see their sons and daughters as sons and daughters. Uh, and that's probably the way you should look at it. Um, and then uh, remembering also that just because a scientist tells you something doesn't mean he ain't, you know, Janice and Jambres. Uh, a lot of times they are. Uh, more and more. I'm still going to go to doctors. I'm not checking out on that one yet, but I'm not going to listen to them as if they all have studied because they haven't all studied and not all of them are still studying, which really should bother you. Should bother you about your pastor, too, if he ain't studying at all, let me tell you. Uh, Esther, thank you for the letter. I hope that helped a little bit. I'm going to jump right here for just a moment, and then I'm going to vanish again for about three minutes. And when I come back, I hope to have a special guest. Uh, so you definitely want to stick around. All right. Hey, Internet, I am here to rescue, and I have with me Jacob. Is it is it Klug? Klug. Klug. Jacob Klug. Uh, he is a seminarian, and he wants to ask me a couple of questions. Jacob, I can see you. They can see me right. and you. You cannot see me. I'm sorry for what my computer has done. I don't know how to fix that, so you're just going to have to assume that everything looks great from where I'm at. And, All right. Uh, and we'll go from there. So tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe just kind of what part of the country you're from, and then uh, also you know, why these questions, what's the assignment, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, so... <clears throat> My name is Jacob, as I said. I grew up in rural Wisconsin, and I'm currently uh, studying to be a pastor at uh, Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary in Mequon. And um, I contacted you along with some other people, Pastor Wolf Mueller. I talked to him a few days ago, actually, um, because I'm doing an investigation into the use of online media, YouTube, podcasts, etc., for a practical theology course. And so <clears throat> I guess what I'm really trying to investigator figure out is so i see you know all this internet around me i love youtube and i know lots of other people who do especially classmates and and most of it is is like okay or bad or Mm -hmm. at least the opinions and the original the religious opinions are terrible and so people like you and a few others are at least like entering the conversation and so i want to figure out like well why are you entering it the way you are and how can we how can people like me try and do that in a few years that's what i'm i'm after yeah yeah, yeah. that's good that's good so 
the big word ecumenical, right? Uh, what does it mean that there's a church that exists that's a single church that's Jesus church that has all creedal Christian bodies part of it? And then how do you become part of talking to those Christians as particularly, you know, one who believes in the fellowship stances of, say, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, the Wells, or, or otherwise, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think that's a good question, and I would say that the reason I'm here at all is, is what you have said, that I noticed a, a, just a Darth. There was nothing. Uh, and this was back in, you know, 2008 or whatever, and I figured— <laughs> I could talk at a camera and it'd be something, right? And and that's still kind of all that I do, honestly. Um, as much as I continue to try to pivot and use volunteer work uh, work sources, and I'm making use of Discord as a as a network hub and things like that. Um, the long term goal for me, with regard to these things, is just to talk at a camera um, and, and to to get one more voice out there, and honestly, to inspire people uh, to do it themselves. If they're going to be out in that space, I also would like to inspire people to consider that that space is unhealthy in a lot of ways and that we should withdraw from it, not entirely, say, as a, you know, a legalistic like you're sinning if you watch YouTube, um, but more, uh, I've mentioned this already in the show, with a matrix like approach to this, that you're at mm-hmm. you're at war. Uh, and you need to take this as going into the enemy's stronghold. And in the enemy's stronghold, you will be able to pillage him and make use of his things. But you really don't want to set up camp there and live there. Um, so, yeah, th- I mean, that's my that's my first four way into why. Uh, um, how is dumb luck? You just got to throw it at the wall until it sticks and keep throwing. Keep throwing and keep throwing until it sticks. And someone will be like, I don't like that one. You're like, okay, but I do. I'm keeping it. And someone else will be like, I like that one. right? Or someone will be like, I don't like that one. You're like, you're right. I should change it. And so you get yourself into the pool. And you find out who will listen to you. And you might only have three or four people, but like those are your friends, man. Like own them. Those are your fans, actually. Those are your followers. You own them. You find out what they're listening to you for. You give them more of that. And if it's against your conscience to do that, you say goodbye. You're not my fan, right? And, and you just kind of right. move on. It'd be nice to shake everybody's hand and, and kiss and hug and, you know, you know, all be friends everywhere. But it's, it's numbers and uh, another way to say it. Why do I think you should be- pull back from it? It's a false story. The whole thing is a myth. The whole, YouTube is a myth. It's all just a, it's a pretty, pretty myth. And we like to watch it. Ah, oh, it feels good. It's a myth. But it, it is not, as a religion, it is not sufficient to the human need. And the more you can kind of reorient yourself to see that even like the absorption of blue light uh, is part of human mythological worship of the modern age, that we need this thing to feel a certain way and we walk around, you know, holding on to the thing. Um, there's a certain idolatry going on there. Which we're not as Christians going to be able to be like, that's, again, legalistic. Your phone's an idol. Put it down. Like, this, this isn't going to save anybody. And actually, none of the Christians are going to listen either. And so instead, it's more about how do I begin to have real conversation with real people where I actually meet them? And then, this is very important for if you're going to be online, how do I ignore the people who don't want to talk to me? Like, the people who just want to come in and, like, disrupt and yell and say you're wrong, um, I, you have to learn personally to ignore them. Um, not because they may not need someone to talk to them, but because you have to talk to who's talking to you, not to who's yelling at you. And it's a bully place. It's a bully marketplace. And so whoever comes in is just the rudest, tends to be the one that gets their way, unless you're willing to just keep doing what you're doing. So again, cancel culture, right? The, the way to not get canceled is you just don't get canceled. Or if you work for someone who fires you, there's nothing you can do, right? But, um, but in general, if you don't, right? Uh, who is the guy? I still remember the, the Democratic uh, governor who was in the blackface or the whiteface, uh, uh, Ku Klux Klan outfit. This was like a year and a half ago. 
Virginia? I forget. North Carolina is a governor who had been um, dressed up in a very racist and appropriate way as a child. And like this came out and it was like right around elections. This is not, not Trump elections. In any case, he just stayed quiet for like two weeks. It all just went away. He's still there. You know, he just, just didn't talk. Right. It's just a, it's a wind. It's a, it's a non-divine wind, and you want to jump into it. You're going to get flung all over the place. Um, you're going to get called things you wouldn't believe. Uh, you're going to have to believe what you believe, or you're going to get changed. And then that's where I just don't counsel a lot of people to do this, honestly. I think that if you're really a young person right now, um, and you don't have an absolute passion to go shout the gospel into Babylon— it's far better to focus on doing something with your hands that will allow you to make a living uh, so you can provide for your family and support the altar where you are because that local altar, I think, is way more important than this. This is good. This is important. But what if it's not planting or feeding local altars, it's just, it's just vanity at that point. Huh? That's the yeah, question I'll... for you is, is, you know, you only go into this for vanity's sakes at a, at a certain fleshly level. Like you have to think highly of yourself. You have to do that to go to seminary too. You have to think highly of yourself. Yeah, at, at some point, um, like it's it's a matter of you know I've got to be able to, to enjoy the extra effort or enjoy the hobby of of playing the YouTube game or playing the podcast game. If I if it wouldn't, I wouldn't do it. And so that is a, a danger is the you know the narcissism that comes with seeing you on the on the screen in your face everywhere. So yeah, yeah, well, it, yeah. It, it's unavoidable to some extent. Um, I've had to kind of again, reckon with recently, um, I'm not who I am on the screen. No matter how much I've tried to actually be the real person this time, like over the last time it was more of a show. Now I'm really just kind of, I'm Pastor Fisk, I'm talking to you, right? Um, but the more I do that is I have to see this thing as I'm looking at it right here as I look this way and it is disorienting. I'm not looking at you. I can look over here and look at you, but that's not really you. For you to see me, I have to look here, right? And right. actually you can't because you're you're down here. Actually, in a different spot. Yeah, I just look at the table. <laughs> right. uh, so like there's something about the imagery reflection of the entire thing that, yeah, you want to be aware of that and then... The way that it comes off and, and, and really hits the soul in weird places is people think they know you and then they come up to you and act like they know you and you have to be something to them. And you can when they give you this like it's kind of like Paul and Apollos a little bit uh, when they did the miracle and everyone comes up like, oh, they're like gods. It's not like they come up and they think you're a god, but they come up and they, they, they treat you as not any other person. And it would be very easy in that situation uh, to take advantage of that. I would even suggest that perhaps that's something that happens in clergy rosters around the world all the time is that just by virtue of being clergy, they take advantage of people. Um, mm -hmm. So, so this, you know, there's overlap in this, I would say for, for clergy as well. But um, the challenge of the vanity, what well, you pointed out about loving the hobby. So here's, here's really where my cross is in all of this. I don't love the hobby at all. I hate the hobby. I, I, I thought I liked tech. I did not. I like video games. I don't like tech at all. And, and so the process, I mean, I had to plug in like three wires and hit four buttons to turn the studio on. And I feel like it's too much work. <laughs> you know? uh, so, you know, if you love the hobby, like you, you know, you love the actual tech itself and you want to, you want to play with that because once you get into a regular habit of this, aside from throwing it at the wall and see if it sticks, you have to keep throwing it at the wall. So as long as you're throwing it at the wall, someone's listening. And as long as it's good and you're listening to what they're saying back, it should continue to improve. And, you know, since we've got the gold of the scriptures, it's going to be heard by someone. It's going to do some work. But then it's, mm -hmm. it's a calendar event. And we underestimate 
the impact of calendar events in the modern world. We think we can just have all sorts of them and that they won't do much to our lives. They completely throw you off, especially on a weekly basis. They become a clock for your body in terms of tiredness that most people don't pay attention to because we're running off of you know regular digital time. Um, and so being able to like, for me, every Saturday, every Saturday, I get up. I do not get the two hours of study I get on other days of the week, which I like to have. Instead, I have to get just kind of up and moving look not completely gross and then go through a bunch of questions and talk. I enjoy that talking part, right? But that's every Saturday again, (laughs) every Saturday. And so that will build up over time. So before you dig into this sort of as a life goal, whereas if you don't finish it, you're a failure, um, you know, know that going in. The the good thing about podcasting, you can start one, stop one. You know, it, it really doesn't matter much. Uh, I recently saw a district advertisement announcing that they're they're priv- they're pleased to start a podcast. I was like, oh golly, they announced it before you even did it. That's a great, good, good for you guys. Anyway, sorry, I'm 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 not bitter. I swear. What's your question? <laughs> um, well, that makes sense. A lot of sense too. Um, yeah, I think that's something that a lot of us who are thinking about this at school will have to wrestle with. You know, how, how much time are we going to commit? You know, we we don't even know what it's like to try and be a right. a parish pastor yet. Yeah. You know, and that's a, 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 you know, more than enough to to chew by itself, I imagine. So, um, one other question or thought I had is, you know, what the, the people who have entered the space, what have they done really well, and what maybe haven't we tried yet, and what's something that, that's really you know, interesting. What, yeah, that's a great question because you have some really diverse attempts, uh, at least in terms of the the niches that we picked up. So you mentioned Wolf Miller. Mm-hmm. Uh, Roseboro was the one furthest ahead of the game in this, although it wasn't YouTube, it was just radio. But I, I think by far he has the largest singular extra LCMS audience. Um, I don't know. Wolfgang's yeah. done, done a lot of great stuff with YouTube, and I don't know what his numbers are now. Um, but uh, um, Issues Etc. was sort of there as well as a mothership within the Missouri Synod. And that's sort of a – you see a bit of the weird relationship the Missouri Synod has had with media – wherein we've had some successes, but we never really knew how to capitalize on them other than to kind of loot them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And uh, and so, you know, here we are having to start over again where we could have had what was the the Lutheran hour 100 years ago, you know, Mm -hmm. now could have offices in D.C. and in New York with like really loud shows and billboards if we had just kind of realized what we were doing. Um, but we didn't, and we funneled those monies into not knowing what we were doing. And so those, those institutions just aren't able to, to come out and be on the front. And for whatever reason, they haven't worked with those of us who are in a way that makes it possible to kind of have us congeal. So that's, that's the thing that's frustrating is there's not a lot of congealing. Um, it's, it is a wild west. And uh, the congealing only exists insofar as the rapport any one of us can manage to get with the other guy who happens to be very busy, right? So all of us. So, yeah. Um, but others who are out there, I mean, you know, 1517, you can debate their personnel choices if you want. I'm, I'd rather stay out of that. What they have done has is realize how the space works and they are funneling good planning into the digital space of their theology. And uh, in that mm-hmm. way, I would say that they will outpace uh, any of us, me, Wolfmuller, Roseboro, um, I think you throw, um, I'm gonna lose his name, Justin Sinner in here. Um, sure. we're all, we're uh, all kind of, we're all kind of us. We're all us. And that means it kind of li- lives and dies with us. And, and that's okay. You can go into it and know that, 
my question is, mm-hmm. you know, as, I still have hopefully 25, 30 years of this. How do I build me into something that I can actually like let go of, right? Um, but fifteen seventeen is going at it from the point of view of it's already going to be not revolving around one teacher per se. Um, so that's something that's valuable. How you make that happen again? Mm-hmm. It has to be with networks, relationships, and trust. It's not going to be top down because they pay you a paycheck to go do it. Um, and uh, that's probably better in the long run. Uh, the Lutheran Hour did not come about from a, a board of directors making a decision. A guy got on the radio as a Missouri Synod pastor and just started talking, and people were like, "Wow, that guy sounds like he." Whoa! Right, and so. I mean, we could recover that a little bit. I think my conversation with Dr. Kuntz about Camerer's preaching versus the way Missouri Synod preaching used to be, um, Lutheran preaching used to be, I think that's an important part of, you know, why radio maybe is not listened to, Lutheran radio at times these days. Um, Who else is out there? I'm trying to think, you know, I've seen others that touched the surface and then went away. And so I don't, I don't know if I want to call them attention because I think some others that are in my age bracket, um, they just realize that I got to make a choice between this, that, or the other thing. And I'm not mm-hmm. going to choose this. And I've had that thought recently a lot, although I don't plan to go away. Um, uh, but I, I do plan uh, to be very clear about, right? Like, y- if you're going to be podcasting, you're not going to be doing something else. And if that's part of your ministry, then that's okay. Your congregation is going to have to understand this. I don't even know how to, st- I still don't know how that works out here. Other than that, my congregation knew what I was by and large before they called me this time, right? But you're going to go out and try to start something where sure. you are. Um, you need to, be, uh, tr- and there's no history. Yeah. Right. Right. There's, yeah. And how do you, I mean, even where I've gone, every church I've gone into like 90% of the congregations that I've served, right. Uh, in the, the people in the pew don't know I do anything online. They, they, they just have no idea to do anything online. And I, I, I used to try to like say, well, you could try, you could try. And you just realize some people aren't going to go there and it's just not their world. And you're, you're called mm-hmm. to them. But then this other thing right. can serve those who are in the pew too. And you're called to them. And then you have this, recognition that there is a time of opportunity for the word to just fly that you don't want to you know miss you know if they turn the lights off this will all be gone and whoever you know was listening in swahili where you know not swahili you know in 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 some place way over there i you know i look at the podbean downloads and like every year there's like one from Djibouti or something right and like so you know they listen to it and it was the last thing they did before the power goes out and like they live on that who knows who knows how the lord's going to use this and so I would say it's kind of like Paul's words in First uh, Timothy three, uh, and it is a noble task. Pursue it if you want to pursue it, um, but it, it <sighs> if you cannot do it, I recommend not doing it. That that's where I'm at. I'll, I'll say that. Build build your own house, uh, raise some of your own food, learn how to skin a deer, um, do some of that stuff with your Saturdays. Uh, but now again, if you love the tech, you love the tech. So. Um, and we each are going to have our own paths, and I'm talking to a lot more people than just you, right? So, uh, yeah. Very, very true. Yeah, yeah. I, I think a lot of us um, at school are kind of asking that question. You know, well, okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll be a pastor and I'll do this, and then like, well, what else will I do? And of course, we've got hobbies, but you know, like you can only you know go to a Brewers game every so often or go hiking or whatever. So, well, what? You know, each many of us are going to want to have a theological hobby just because we happen right. to be fairly into the right. into it all, and and so you know that's what I'm asking myself is is that is that some kind of YouTube podcast thing the theological hobby or is it you know study and and, and well it's all 
always study, but writing papers or something else or, right. you know, who knows. Right. So, so what I've discovered recently yeah. that I didn't know I, di- I loved as much as I do. And it took, um, again, going blue light free and entertainment for a while, um, mm-hmm. was the absolute potency of studying the scriptures in the original language. Like, I still can't admit it to my, my conscience. Like when I have a free moment and I think, what do I want to do? Like my, my, my brain will be like, well, obviously I want to go read the Hebrew right now. Like I haven't gotten out of that work mentality, that modern mindset about time yet enough to just feel that, but I can feel it coming too, where literally mm-hmm. I just want to have my Greek Bible with me. It's just what I want to open up. And if nothing else is going on, I just want to be the guy who just turns around and keeps reading it. And I, I want to do things. I want to build my hands. Like I said, but so Getting that kind of study, that doesn't come easy. That comes with discipline and repetition, something that at my seminary experience, we were not trained to do that. We were trained to be office workers, uh, philosophical office workers, which is weird. Um, So to actually be one who goes into a study and retreats and then comes out with something worth saying, whether it's a paper um, or whether it's what your people need to hear. You know, what you need to hear, what you need to grow in so that they can mimic you as they try to grow in their crazy worlds. Um, that all is, uh, yeah, it's, it's an investment in time. And I would say then, before you go and do anything that you consider an actual vocation, right, um, get that thing running. Get your habit of study in the scriptures running. Get your habit of prayer daily in the Psalms with Hebrew if you can. You know, get that running. And then we're getting there. Yeah. And then, yeah, right. You work on it. Right. But then um, yeah. I'm, and I'm talking about, you know, you're in the parish now. Right. Um, and then if you happen to have a podcast that you and some guys do on the side and it's just fun, like that's awesome because the reason let me let me kind of backpedal. The worst reason in the world to get into this is because you think you're going to reach a lot of people. Don't do right. that. I don't reach a lot of people. I have a very small footprint if you're going to talk real numbers. It's incredibly tiny. It's like pathetic. To even talk about it as doing something kind of is embarrassing to me because it's not. It's not at that level. Um, that's okay. And the, but the sales pitch of all this stuff is that you're going to come in. You're going to be the one-hit wonder. You're going to have this big thing. And it's going to have a big impact. And for the Christians that come in, they're like, oh, yeah, and a lot of people are going to listen. And then they're going to become Lutheran. And then this, and this, and this. Don't do that. Just don't even play the game. You want to get together with some friends? have a great theological conversation, record it, and then invite other people to listen and comment. And you can stop any week or miss a week or whatever. That's Mm -hmm. just life. That's great. That's sharing, right? Share away. But turning this into a vocation, I mean, right now, um, can I talk about Patreon right now? If you're my my friend on Patreon, uh, it's a third of my income. It's it's how we generate my single income with a smaller parish in transition and five kids and all all that, how Mm -hmm. it worked out when it did. But now I'm stuck with it. I can't just pull out the lights um, and uh, or if the lights go out, I've got a whole different kind of financial ball I got to deal with, which as a father, you, you got to think about. So I would I would inc- and, and why? Let me say that one more time in a different way. I'm not convinced that the technological world is going to let me keep doing this. I'm not convinced Patreon is going to let Christians who say man and women are different just be there forever. I don't think they're coming after us this year, but I think there'll come a time where they increasingly extend their babble unless it all collapses. And at that point, I'm going to lose a spigot, right? And so I've got to right. be prepped here for what that means. I've got to be tra- talking to my listeners about, well, you want to find me? Here's you know, what the Mad Monday's newsletter is. So it, it becomes, when it's your vocation, it becomes so much more than just, hey, let's do a podcast. Uh, and, but hey, let's do a podcast. I, I, golly, that, that sounds good, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you made it very clear, like in a number of your recent videos, that you're, you know, trying to turn off all the hoses or, or the spigots to to the 
to the money if you need to because you you don't know when it might stop and um so that's a yeah that make it's a huge consideration and something i'll be sure to remember well you just don't know when your footprint's going to be taken and for what reason and then again do you want to mm-hmm. enter that space i mean it's, this is silly i think but you know the way twitter was screaming before um uh january 6th you know part of me was like okay so when's the van gonna pull up and like take me away as a as a you know a, a terrorist right because i'm on youtube and, and you know i and i have that thought as an adult male and then i have to be like that's a silly thought it's not realistic i'm gonna pray about it anyway you know all, all that but right. you're putting yourself out there in a way where um you don't have to and you can live a long and very full life without having other people see you on tv <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and and so just <clears throat> kind of knowing where that is in the whole mix um yeah 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 i think um, everything you said has given me a lot and uh, I know I've got some friends listening and so we'll have a lot to talk about, I think the rest of the day here. So yeah, that's basically what I wanted to ask you. Uh, I think the way we talked about it, um, I'm satisfied. That was great. Thank you for your time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, can I ask what class this was for? This is just for, you're trying to talk to any pastor in general about something. So that... yeah, you can, um, this is an education class actually. It's, it's our first like Christian education class and we got assigned a very, open-ended generic project and so we could do any number of things and so what i'm doing is just talking to pastors who have podcasts and and channels or something and talking about what they're doing how they're doing it why they're doing it and i'm kind of kind of having a different conversation with each of them like like this conversation is kind of more like meta or the theory to it all but I, i was more practical when i talked about talked with us all about um how pastor wolf Mueller. uh like edited his videos and how he picked out his topics and everything. So like I'll have a few different um, conversations with uh, a professor of mine, actually, hopefully. And then some guys from uh, Wisconsin Lutheran college who run a podcast and and who knows who else will answer me. So maybe Justin Sinner. We'll see. So that's um, what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It's good. I'm curious about Wolf Miller's machine because he's got a very different um, help system than I do. And I don't want to minimize mine. I mentioned how, you know, I just kind of plug in a couple of things. Um, The discord channel, and the people that are basically just Christians in their life somewhere who are saying, I'll help do this thing. Uh, it's quite a powerful network when we want to flex it. And that's, that's the idea is to also build your, whoever's listening to you to try to turn them into some place where they can talk to each other. And then you can gradually marshal them for things they want to be marshaled for, right? You're not trying to move them for yourself, but you, you're getting them together for what they want. And right. so um, that's where these things become become super helpful. I feel like one other thing I wanted to say to you as you ah, you were yeah, talking please. about um, it was before the meta comment though, and that's why I, I, I my mind shifted on the meta comment. Um, mm, Education class. Yeah, that's um, the right direction. What did I say next? I said I was having different conversations with with um, pastors from you know different areas, uh, podcasts, blogs channels yeah yeah it was it was in the education direction and Mm. it again was sort of the the question a little bit um before we run off and try to use something new for education maybe we should figure out why our kind of normal education's tripping up so much and uh maybe it's by using this stuff that that will find that conversation i don't know but again it seems to me what's the proverb i came across recently the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth uh, mm-hmm. that that really the bigger issue is what's in front of me 
what my who my neighbor is, recognizing my my children are my foremost neighbors, they're the closest to me, um, and then as a, a one who is given to preach the gospel, uh, if there is a a platform that can be used that you can use, I don't see why anybody wouldn't grab it. I don't know how, as somebody who is zealous to say Jesus is risen, you don't just grab every chance you have to do it. That's why you'd want to be a pastor, I would hope. And so, so in that regard, you know, don't let me talk you out of it. Other than that, it's like boot camp, right? You're going to get in, you, you know, buckle up, Yahoo. <laughs> this thing's, and this thing ain't going to be the same in another <clears throat> 10 years of what it was 10 years ago. It's, it's just so different. And you might get thrown off, and then who cares? It's a good ride. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it is important that. You know, we all make sure we're talking about, well, how do we make sure catechism is uh, as best as possible and Bible class as best as possible, too? We, if we, you know, lose sight of those immediate issues in our parishes and in, in our circuits and whatever um, for looking at, at media things, that would be um, maybe prioritizing backwards or, or something like that. Right. Well, I wonder right. again more and more how much the images don't actually help us internalize the way that we need to. And so, I mean, again, for YouTube being one thing, but then you know, you're not going to get your seventh grade class to sit there and listen to a podcast. <laughs> I can't do that either. And they're, they're probably not going to um, go and listen to a podcast. So some of it is also, you know, the, the, the mediums of communication in Babel are always changing. And I see my, my personal job as a pastor to try to engage that change any way I can. YouTube is one of those avenues. A podcast is another avenue, and they may go away like any other language, I think, could go away. Yeah, that reminds me. Uh, a pastor I know, uh, he actually uses VR with his 7th and 8th graders for catechism. Whoa. And so, so far, they love it. Like They, they were touring uh, the Holy Land and looking at some uh, theology in stained glass and cathedrals, stuff oh, like wow. that. And he gave a presentation at school, I don't know, maybe a month ago about that. And um, so that's something that's, you know, very different. And, and he's, you know, one of a few doing that. But the, right. the kids and the congregation actually seem to enjoy it. So there's, you know, yeah, and that's where it, that I mean, hey, kids, kids will say they like all sorts of stuff. But true. The, <laughs> I, what he's doing, though, is he's trying to actually reckon with them where they are rather than mm -hmm. do something super universal for everybody. Um, there's a place where what you're doing locally might be beneficial to everybody. And I think Wolfmuller is probably the best I've ever seen. He seems to make everything hit both locally and, and wide. Um, so I'd, I'd model on him uh, more than anyone else. Um, in fact, I do model on him, I should say. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, yeah. so good. You, I, this is encouraging, Jacob. Like uh, Brian said to me uh, last year's pre-COVID, maybe it was two years ago, he said, you know, I, I just want to be the guy. That's a, that was a pretty good wolf movie. I just want to be the guy. That's good. Yeah, uh, uh, who finds the next guy? I'm gonna I'm gonna fall apart now. But he says like, who finds the next guy who's gonna be bigger than either of us? And I want to encourage him to do it. And uh, and it's like, yeah, God, Brian, you humbled me yet again with your passion for right things. Um, so you know, God bless you, Jacob, and your friends as you have these conversations, as you study what it means to be a communicator of the gospel in a dark and evil age, and as you remember that the medium. Um, can be the message, and that's perhaps why witchcraft is wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> put all those things together uh, in the same same thing. We'll be right back here in a few moments with more of your questions and Bible's answers. Mad Christian Saturday morning chill. Stick around. All right. Well, we we used a lot of time there, and I want to make sure I get to all your questions today. We probably will go over a little bit, um, but we won't take that break. We'll just kind of keep moving here. Uh, Judith says this, dear Pastor Fisk, I appreciate how you are working to build up men. I have a husband, brothers, one son, and three grandsons, so this is somewhat relevant to me. It's, it's relevant to the whole planet, yeah? Um, so do you think it is significant that the creature caught in the bushes during Abraham's test was a ram? 
There's a lot of reference to lambs in the Bible, but a ram seems more specifically male. That's actually not true, if I'm not mistaken. Um, there, there are she-rams. Uh, I have heard Jesus described as being omnisex, and there are certainly paintings that suggest an effeminate persona. The reference to a ram may work against that. Well, I think him being a man works against that, right? Born of a virgin with a circumcisable part of his humanity. Yes. Um, so uh, on the ram, um, as I see Wolf Mueller just talking in the side comments, do you know? I'm pretty sure the ram is a clean offering in Levitical codes, and so it's, it's equal to or of a quality with a lamb. You may think of a lamb more often because of uh, the Passover, which specifically requires a lamb. There's also goats involved uh, for various things like atonement. So um, the ram is just a clean animal. So it's a quality clean animal. It was there in the bushes with thorns around its head like a crown as a uh, an offering without spot or blemish and really shows the meaning of vicarious atonement, right? That one takes the place of another for the sake of justifying what must be done. And so Isaac figuratively rises from the dead as a foreshadow of the Christ who actually does. Yeah, our Lord. Yeah, so he has risen. You are paid for. That makes you immortal. He won't be long now. That's worth remembering. But on to the part about um, uh, Jesus being omnisex. Yeah, well, I mean, all right. you believe there's a devil, right? I mean, that I, I might be left turn for you, but... <laughs> If there's a devil, there's a couple things we can know about the devil. You don't really want to get in the psychology of the devil too far. He's mad. But he's mad in this way. He hates the Father, and he hates the Son. He hates them, he hates them, he hates them, he hates them. With everything that he is, that's all he can do is hate them, because that is what he is doing into his malicious end of mad hate. And hating the Father and hating the Son, that means if he wants, if he can, if he can scar their image, if he can, if he can hide from us who they really are, then that's all he's got. He knows all he's going to do is burn. His vindication is trying to take as many as he can with him. It will not work insofar as taking the elect whom God has chosen to never be taken. That's you. That's you. Believe it. Believe it. Um, so, again, though, believe it and then see why he's always going to attack fathers and why he's always going to attack, well, um, the distinction between man and woman. One way or the other, whether it's through chauvinism and abuse or whether it's through saying, don't even exist, I was born this way. Wait a minute. I thought the argument was you were born. That was just like 10 years ago. We have to know that most of what we see of Jesus, most of what we've been taught about Jesus is in the water of a feminizing, demasculinized Jesus from at least the Victorian era on. It's certainly in most of our artwork, not usually crucifixes, but sometimes there as well. But it's where the crucifix is really nice. It makes it hard to have it be like effeminate and pretty, right? It's very difficult because it's a it's an implement of torture. And it is a it's a terrifying and awful thing to ponder and speculate on, the crucifixion. So it's hard to make that one feminine, although I'm sure some have tried. One guy put it in a bucket of pee and won awards for it. Piss Christie, you heard of it? It's amazing what we do with like uh, federal dollars. I think I think it was a federal federal award. I don't know. Um, I mean, but really, uh, the art, the imagery, the idea, the persona of Jesus has been uh, emasculated and in the emasculation process for a good long time. And it's as simple as looking at any picture of the Good Shepherd and never seeing a wolf anywhere in it. And because of that, you can just know they've, that the, the, the zeitgeist, the cultural or the cult of Jesus in Americana is a different 
Christ. It is a different Jesus than the one who fights the wolf for you. Okay, it's a Jesus who makes you happy like a lamb in your best life now, right? Uh, it all kind of clicks, huh? So, um, uh, I'm not sure the ram's going to help us so much here, but I think that recognizing that the move to to feminization of all things is not really just about how you know um, matrilineal culture happened to arise from primates living on the smaller continent of the third planet from Seoul, blah, 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 blah. Uh, it, it has a lot more to do with the devil hating man and particularly hating man because Jesus' father, right? Um, all of the above. And uh, we're just dumb enough to not see it right now. <laughs> Which really shows you Babel. I mean, Babel Babel's a strong thing. When they say bow before that statue, you're like, why is she bowing with me? Fisky's crazy. He won't bow with us. All. I don't get it. What's wrong with that guy? So, like, like right? It's, um, I'm not saying that, like, He-Man Jesus is the answer either. That's not the answer, He-Man Jesus. <laughs> I remember seeing a picture of him once. This is a fake one. He's like, he's like you know, flexing, and he's, like, breaking the cross. It's, like, falling apart or anything. It defeats the purpose. It just defeats the purpose. It is not the um, the Jocko attack that that the masculinity of Jesus has. It's the Jocko I won't move that Jesus has, and that the crucifixion endures. That James the Just, I can't get over this story. It's so intense. He's preaching to Jews. Because they want to trip him up and people start converting. So they push him off a ledge and he falls 40 feet. Hits his body on the ground. It's broken, but he ain't dead. He starts praying. So they start throwing rocks at his head. Rocks, rocks, rocks. Bam, bam, bam. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. I've heard that before. People being stoned in Jerusalem. I've heard that before as the prayer of a righteous man. They go up and they bash his head in with a bat and a cudgel. And again... Imagine it now. Live through that and then explode into glory with the resurrection. Oh my goodness. The more I think about that, that kind of masculinity, the more I want it. And it's not, it's not, it's the masculinity that knows that anger is Christian gentleness. It's the opportunity for gentleness. That courage is what gentleness will not not do. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll insist on standing firm on uh, and that to see that in my Lord's action, to see that in his apostles, his disciples, I think that um, the reformers would have lived this way, but it's, we've, we've, we've paper dolled them so much, but somewhere between the reformers and now, like, like we put down the staff, we put down the staff of our authority as as men of our our tribal reality, the bloodlines, our heritages, all these things. And it is it's the it's the casino of America, breakfast of power with Koontz, and we talk about a bunch there. So I'm not going to go into it here, but um, that casino of America doesn't mind Jesus as long as he doesn't resist, <laughs> right? Yeah. Which you can pay your taxes to Caesar, and I plan on only resisting with words for the most part. Um, but that's just it. Like you can't, you can't please my mind. I'm not gonna let you please my mind. So here's where you know the encouragement. I hope so, and I pray that at the end of this, like I was saying to Jacob a moment ago, what I really want you young men to do is just invest in your families. You know, realize that Minecraft, however you played it, that workbench there that lets you make all the other workbenches, like you can do one of those in your actual garage, and like build with it out of wood and stone. Everything. It's like it's like it's 
Except, you know, can't make water appear out of nothing, and you're not going to mess with lava anytime soon, right? So I, I get it. I get the big. But the big is fake. It's a big fake lie. And, like, that's fun for a time. But what is fun but vanity? I don't know. I've, I've don't 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 hear me be a legalist again. I don't want to be a legalist. I'm so afraid of of you guys. Like like, you know, have you heard this one? Like the uh, the the teacher. Um, it's not a really. This is a man way of saying it. Um, the teacher goes number one, standing up. So the disciple goes number one, running. Right, and uh, that's what you don't want to do with this. Right, you want to let me keep wrestling with this for you, and let me see where I come out in a year. Uh, as I as I back away from the blue light, but it, you should consider fasting, right? You should consider minimizing. I'm I'm convinced of that, but don't let me tell you that we just have to unplug entirely. I want to though. That's the problem. I want to, and but I don't want you to take that as like you have to. You hear me? Like that would be awful. That'd be really awful. Please stand on grace, Judith. Um, yeah. Well, have to. We have to recover. We have to recover man and woman. It must be a reality because it is a reality. You can observe it. They even used to talk about it because they, the birds and the bees. Because the birds and the bees do it, and like it works. You watch, it works. It happens all the time. Hey, son, this is how it goes, right? Yeah. Uh, Jonathan says this, Rev Fisk, good Reverend Fisk. I've noticed your annoyance with the word Lutheranism and the title Lutheran to describe your church body's religion, sect, flavor. I'm not quite yet a Lutheran. I'm working on it, but I sympathize with that annoyance. The fact that Lutherans are named after a man who did not want his name to become a moniker for the movement and so named by the movement's own adversary, adversary is a great irony. Why did the name stick around for 500 years? So I'm going to stop here for a moment. It didn't really. The, the use of Lutheran is a largely English phenomenon. And that's where it really is a strange thing to cling to it so hard. It's not like it was an early moniker. Um, it was what they were called by, uh, by the Romanists, by the Papists. But uh, evangelical, I believe, is what they called themselves. Now, again, you are sort of stuck with what you are. A little bit. And so um, why did it stick around for 500 years? Because it bound people together. Um, it stood as a symbol for the Augsburg Confession and the small catechism for a kind of church that was both high, that is uh, liturgically sound and believing in the sacraments, but then also uh, of the people, that is, believes you should know your scriptures and that those scriptures are there to empower you for a life filled with grace and faith and trust in a dark and evil age. And so, um, you know, it didn't necessarily, it wasn't necessarily a problem. I don't necessarily have a problem with the name Lutheran at all. I just don't want to fight to keep it either, right? So there's a big difference there. And I have a problem with isms in general. Any ism is not Christianity. It is some other thing under Christianity. And if it really is saying we're just real Christianity, like Lutheranism says, well, then we should just say we're real Christianity. That's kind of where, where I've come on that. So it's not about per se that we have to jettison the term. It's that the term, however, is not doing what we think it's doing and maybe hasn't for a long time and maybe never should have been. I don't know. But instead of trying to go back and like complain about what my father's did, it's more like, okay, right now, whatever that word means, we've got to figure it out again. <laughs> yeah. And if it doesn't make any sense, then we should do something about that. Yeah? Um, and yeah, I, I don't know that it's helpful for conveying a position. I, I don't think there's a problem with necessarily having a Lutheran church, unless you think that church is meant to stand there without ever reforming the Roman Catholic church. So that's a different topic, but um, yeah. So where did the Lutherans, were they too uncreative with the name or they just pushovers? We're pushovers in America is what it is. We wanted to be accepted. We wanted to fit in with American Protestantism. Um, 
I shouldn't say that entirely. There were a lot of people involved in these fights, and there was a lot of resistance to what has happened as American uh, kind of philosophy has swallowed the Missouri Synod's uh, livelihood, uh, vigor. Uh, and so, you know, I don't want to blame any one person, but certainly they're, they're not pushover. We've been sold out. We've been sold out by men who just wanted to cash a paycheck and preach uh, and, and not necessarily shepherd. Um, at this point, uh, Jonathan goes on. I guess it's because Lutherans like old things, and the name has become an old thing. You're right. We resist change. It's not Lutherans. It's everybody. Everybody resists change because we think we've made it how it should be, and that keeping it from changing will keep it better than getting worse. But somehow it gets worse, and then we complain about how it used to be better, but we won't change anything because that's sin. That's just it. That's the sinful condition. So get used to it. Uh, we just do this, right? Um, so uh, we do cling to it just because it's there. That's not just an old thing. That's an idol. And that's where, again, I'm like, okay, if we're going to call ourselves Lutheran, we should kind of know what it means at some point. And what does it mean? Because it doesn't mean we follow Luther. And then, so then how do we make it mean something else? What well, means the Augsburg Confession? How am I supposed to know that? How do you know that? How, do we know that? And, and well, if we don't talk about it, we won't. So in any case, Jonathan goes on. I propose two potential monikers to replace it. Confessional Christian. Um, that would be a wide thing that most Lutherans wouldn't be able to handle because of something called the Barman Declaration. Or, well, maybe not just because of that. But uh, it'd be more like... Uh, who was it? Oh, he's a he's a Duke of Saxony. I can't think of his name. Anyway, he like he like f was the one that started making Lutheran pastors commune reformed and bat the sword and put them in jail and stuff. Uh, I can't think of it now. And anyway, at this point, oh, I don't want to skip there. So or creedal Christian. Well, so all right. So for my own part, when I'm like talking about the sons of Solomon and I'm wanting to start a prayer movement amongst Christianity. I'm aiming for creedal Christians. That's exactly what I'm aiming for. Creedal Christians. Those who hold to the apostles, the Nicene and or particularly, preferably uh, the Athanasian. But even if it's just apostles Nicene, I'm trying to get you to start praying the sons of Solomon prayers as a potential ecumenical reality that we might all pray for Jesus to save us through the midst of this entire nonsense that we're in. Um, and so I think you're onto something there and recognizing that creedal Christianity in the una sancta sense, in the big church sense, is a way to sort of see the edge of the visible church. Like, where is visible Christianity existing? But remember that visible Christianity is the institution of the, of the papacy, actually. <laughs> it, is the, it is the una sancta is tyrannized by this man who calls himself the head of it all. And no matter what we do about it, he makes what looks like Christianity do stuff and by our reactions to it. And this is a historical phenomenon. We call him the Antichrist for this reason. Um, yada, 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 yada. Uh, but that creedal Christianity, it is certainly there. I'm not sure that just, just talking about creedal Christianity is going to unify us any more than talking about Christianity. What's Christianity, right? And that's where you have to go back to the scriptures. That's where you have to be local and not expect to unify the entire planet in your lifetime. <laughs> Still put that one on the table. I doubt anyone will actually adopt them. Well, John, that's the problem. Anything new, right? Anything new is even less likely to be adopted right now. So what we want is just to fall back on the old. So what does creedal Christian mean? Fall back on the actual creeds. Forget the title. Do the thing, right? Forget the name. Don't pose. Don't brand. Be. Yeah. Um, mm -mm -mm -mm. Uh, mind if I want to appreciate it. Thanks for the didaskalion. You're welcome. Teaching. Teaching is such a key word in the Bible. P.S. I could not figure out for the life of me if that was the grammatically correct way to say, but I went for it anyway. Um, yeah, actually, I think you did put it in the objective there, um, which accusative, excuse me, I should say accusative. You did put it in the accusative. That's very good parsing. Um, I, I'm not as careful with that when I'm doing it in English with y'all as, as I could be because well, until you're looking it up and calling me on it, yeah, so be it. Uh, so thank you, Jonathan, for that. I hope that, that um, my answer was sufficient. Jason says this. 
Um, hold on, be right back. Reverend Fisk, I often wonder if I am too overly idealistic. Well, do you live? Then you probably are. Uh, which has caused me to travel one hour and 20 minutes to an LCMS congregation when there are dozens more LCMS churches closer to me. Well, you're going to go in and talk about this quite a bit more. And I'm going to tell you, like, off the front, no, you're not too idealistic. You're taking advantage of the situation you have and getting the best food that you can. And that no one should, um, you shouldn't settle for leaven in your food. And so better than going to a place where you know you're getting leaven is to not go. Now, to truly be faithful is not to stay there then, but to pray for the Lord to either send you a righteous preacher, teacher, or to provide the means for you to go to one. So it's it's not as easy as, oh, well, just stop going to church, Harold Camping. Okay, it's, it's, it's not Harold Camping at all. But there is a fact that you don't just go to any church. That's, that's complete folly. And just because it's got a certain brand name on the outside, I'm sorry, I'd love to tell you that my brand name sells and it's always the same, but <laughs> only macro farming does that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pharmaceuticals, I suppose. Stuff from China. But, you know, LCMS, no, 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 no. We are a, we're a circus. Um, so here's what you've done. And this is, you're going to show us the circus. Here's the circus. I go to the online church. I go to a church's website. I find out if they have a contemporary service, regardless if they have traditional liturgical service, I eliminate them, right? So if they've decided that revivalism is the way they think they should handle the darkness, you say, check mark, no. Now, revivalism. For many of you who are watching, listening, you maybe don't know what I mean when I say revivalism. And if I were to say, I don't think praise and worship is good for church, you might really think I'm crazy because you've never heard anyone talk like that before. Or the only people who do, insist that you try to sing slow songs to a loud organ all the time and that it's very painful and you don't like that either. And I get that, okay? So understand that all those arguments about how the music sounds aren't really the argument that was happening around us the last 30 years. The argument that was happening around us the last 30 years is, do you save people by spectacle or do you save people by the word of Jesus? That's the question. And so right now, if you find a contemporary service at a local church that's a Lutheran church. Now, granted, churches that only do this spectacle thing and arose out of revivalism from the east, excuse me, from the west and then came east from California. Like, I, I'm a little bit, you're in a different place. You're in a different place. But if you are a church that has inherited the liturgy and you are jettisoning the liturgy in order to inhabit spectacle and you think this is the path to greater faithfulness in 30 years, I wouldn't go to your church because you're not going to be here in 30 years. I want my kids to go to a church that's going to be here in 30 years. And if you've married spectacle, you cannot compete. You can't do it. A single good preacher can hold them together for a while, but it's going to be <laughs> tenuous. You got you got no boundaries, right? There's you, you don't believe in boundaries. It's just a poor form. It's a poor framework. And it's not to say that, say, institutional church or the liturgical calendar can't grow or learn or that the liturgy is exactly what it should be in every place that it's practiced, but it is to say that I completely agree with you. I wouldn't even visit. I wouldn't even visit. That's just me. You know, I'm, I'm nuts, right? I'm nuts. So, <laughs> Look at, I mean, we're Portland Trailblazer stuff in this age, in this age. So, uh, so boom, that removes half of the churches you could possibly go to. Well, I mean, yeah, it does. Sure. Um, now again, I, let me, let me come back though. If you go to a different, like a non-liturgical tradition church and you're finding my show, you're finding my stuff, like don't let this argument quite have the same impact on you. Instead, flip it the other way around and realize you are, if you, if you just go to a church where all they do is sing rock and roll songs, but they preach the Bible to you 
thanks be to Jesus that they preached the Bible to you. Recognize that the movement of all you do is sing praise songs is not that old. And again, its essence is the belief that the preaching won't hold you and they have to do a spectacle to get you to come and come again. And so a lot of the financial capacity of these organizations is in creating spectacle. Um, By the way, in the LCMS, uh, Lutheran schools have become a version of this over time, Uh, a, a spectacle that we try to maintain in order to convince ourselves that we're really still doing fine as church rather than just believing, you know, that those who come, to pray to Jesus and receive his body and blood, that they are sufficient. They are sufficient. You know what they're not sufficient for is, uh, you know, a healthcare package. I'm going to raise my hand. I don't want to say that, cut off my own legs. But it's a fact. It's a fact, and it's something we're going to have to reckon with one way or the other. It's coming down our throats from the wind, whether we like it or not. So, secondly, he goes on, I will email the pastor and ask one question. Would you serve my grape juice? Would you serve me grape juice if I request it? Now, this is very clever. Very, very clever. You've you've found a way to cut through the white noise very quickly, because you're right. If he says I'll serve you grape juice, then you know he's a sacramentarian at heart. You know he's a, he's a Philippist. He's a, he's ultimately a, a Calvinist. And um, while such a person can be a member and not know the difference, and it's probably fine in Jesus' sight, and he'll know the difference uh, by thirty years from now, since you're going to preach to him, right? Um, you have good faithful preaching, but. Uh, if the pastor, <laughs> if the official teacher doesn't know the difference, um, well, then you're right. I, I would, I would check that off right away and, and right away as well. And so, well, uh, look what happens. This is amazing. You found two churches out of all the, how many did you tell me? 20, uh, no, 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 dozen or more, two churches, two churches that haven't bought into revivalistic, uh, speculation selling and, uh, that still believe that the elements of the Lord's Supper should be handled with some form of reverence that means we don't change it with new stuff just because we feel like it, because uh, the Methodists did. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. so, uh, so you found two churches and chose one over the other because one, which is great in every way, goes to having communion every other Sunday during the summer, whereas the other holds it every Sunday all year round. So for the sake of you know solo communion, you're getting it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. You can go back and forth between them too. They're all, here's the thing, people. In theory, we're only one church. Like that's that's what we teach. That's what that's what the Bible says, right? It's actually one church. It's just circus. Like I said, it's it's really something. And in in theory, denominationalism ought to exist so that we can kind of mitigate the circus and be like, well, we're all pretty sure Jesus rose from the dead, right? So we're all trying to get there. We all think we're wrong about something, but like, let's try to say we agree about some things. Here we go. These things are here. We agree about that. And that was denominationalism. The problem was it didn't like pass generation to generation, mostly because of TV. It's a lot of it. Sorry. It, it is. It's just the TV's, you know, our own teacher, our new teacher. So to choose to go a place where you know you're going to be taught and where you know you're going to get the Lord, I can't fault you. I wouldn't call you idealistic. Not everyone's got this opportunity. And I'm not going to say someone has to drive an hour and 20 minutes to get it weekly when they can drive 15 minutes and get it every other week. I don't know. You've got to make that decision based on your own hunger, your own hunger. And then try not to deride those who don't know how hungry they are yet, recognizing that the anger of man does not bring about that kind of repentance. Rather, um, share, share the food. Right. Rather than, um, you know, tell people how they ought to be more hungry. I don't think you're idealistic. I think that that is increasingly the reality. I think that you're lucky to have one with an hour and 20 minutes. You know, I don't know. How long? How long? How long? I don't know. Stephen says this. I enjoy listening to your podcast and have read your books. I learned a great deal from them. So I value your opinion. 
for that reason, I will turn the mic down for a moment. <laughs> uh, thank you for valuing my opinion. I have a daughter, Grace, who will be 12 in June and, excuse me, continues to arise. Uh, uh, and so starting confirmation soon. My pastor was agreeable to let her begin receiving communion early, so after a year of instruction, she received her first communion about two years ago. I used the Enduring Faith curriculum on, uh, for Sunday school. I think it is a good resource, and like the apologetics and the lessons, CPH does offer an Enduring Faith confirmation curriculum and many other books, enough that it's difficult to make an informed decision. What is your opinion of the Enduring Faith confirmation curriculum? What do you see? At you, what do you use at your church? Any other advice regarding making her confirmation instruction the best on, at passing on the Christian faith, we most appreciate it. Grace is the only child of confirmation age in the congregation, so I and my pastor will be able to choose what we use. Thank you, Stephen. I'm going to say, by being the only child in the process, you have a giant, giant leg up in that you're not going to have to teach a class. <laughs> and you're not asking for resources for a class. I am, I'm utterly convinced that the classroom, as we do it with these 12-year-olds, is it might be entertaining. It might be able to feed their faith, but it is not the best way to feed their faith. And it is certainly not the way um, to get them to, to decide they're going to die like this right now. Well, let's go. Let's, let's vow to death. Like, like that's not, that's not really going to come out of these classes and, and we keep doing it. So I think that you have an advantage and that it's just you and her and your pastor. And um, right now where we are, we're in a lull. We're, we're in a, a couple year moment where, we don't have any, and it's partially because we lowered our age, and then um, a bunch did it at once, and then it were confirmed at once, and now that next group to come up to that age is still kind of kind of got to get there. Um, you know, I don't know that doing by age is always right, but certainly you need a place to kind of start looking, right? And so early communion, I do not separate communion and confirmation. I don't understand why guys are so hung up on that. I'd rather get rid of confirmation if you're going to do that. It's useless. It's completely made up. It's nonsensical. If confirmation is not first communion, I don't know what we're doing with it. It's a waste of time. It's my opinion. Kick me out, whatever. Yell at me. I don't care. It's, it's insane to me that we would hold up this historical tradition that has no bearing whatsoever on anything and has done so much damage to the church. If you look at its use, that the reformers got rid of it and we brought it back with pietism, that we would hold that up as something that you must do separate from the the supper, the whole point is to prepare you for the supper. And so from where I'm at, you should be doing all that before the communion. But that's not, here's the other thing. It's like, so now you're going to do all this work to prepare for the supper. You're going to learn, 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 learn. I'm done. I never have to learn about Jesus again. I get to just have the supper a couple times a year, Christmas and Easter. And I mean, I just don't see, I don't see how this is a pattern we should continue. So for my part, as the, they come up here, I will be at, at great exhortation to convince the fathers to teach the kids in the home, to bring them to church and talk about the sermons at home, to go through the small catechism at home. And that once they have done that, to bring their child for a conversation with me. And we'll just talk about the catechism. What does it mean? What do you believe? And your kids are going to talk. You're going to tell me what you believe a little bit. And I'll be like, oh, that's great. That's great. Okay, cool. Do you want to commune? Huh? And like, we'll see where the kid's at. And then if we have a couple of, well, you know, they'll all come in together, but we're going to treat them a little bit more like adults, honestly. Um, I had someone complain about this once. I I never thought of it because I'm not the parent who has to do it. Let me say it differently. I always thought you parents really wanted this evening class thing for two years. I thought you just needed it. (laughs) I found out some of you don't like it at all. Um, I don't blame you. I don't like it for all the same reasons, but this one that someone recently brought up to me is really good. Um, When they had been watching a, a new member that was an adult come into their local congregation and then get put into leadership very fast. Cause in a 
some churches where you're really hungry and think that you need like something else besides Jesus to survive a new member who seems exciting can be like the answer to all your idolatrous prayers. And so um, the comment was like, oh, wait, three weeks and you're in leadership, but we got to go for two years just to get the kid to commune. Yeah. And, and it's like, huh. Now, you could say that everyone should have to go through two years of catechesis to join your congregation. <laughs> I don't know what planet you live on. Uh, but it, what, what should happen is the shepherd should herd the sheep. <laughs> That's what should happen. And then part of that means recognizing that the father is also a shepherd of those in his home. And he should herd his sheep. And that then when he believes that the uh, you know his son or his daughter should be treated like you know a, a communing adult mind, a pious, thoughtful Christian who at the very least knows that's my God and I need this every week to live. They have, Give it to me now. Why are you holding it back from me? I'm hungry. Feed me, right? Feed me. Um, teaching that doesn't need all the hoopla, doesn't need all the cross-town travel. All it needs is for you to sit down again and talk about the small catechism with your family, talk about the sermons on Sunday afternoon over dinner, and and then again, come in for an interview with your pastor once in a while and ask for some resources. So here you go. You're asking for resources and I get that. So you can do all sorts of stuff. Never stop. This is just it. Don't do this so you can get through confirmation. Start a habit right now, Stephen. You and your daughter, start a habit of talking about Jesus together. Start a habit of talking about Jesus together. And it will not end with confirmation, but you're going to use some materials to help move toward what your pastor wants to do for a confirmation. That's fantastic. And if your pastor wants to do a class, that's fantastic. So don't go to take my opinion and throw it at him. Okay. Um, I'm not right about everything. I'm wrong a lot. Um, But, uh, you know, did I, I think I'm right about this. More important than two years of going through resources is a lifetime of habitual study of the scriptures. That habit, imparting that habit is the most important thing. Now, in terms of the Enduring Faith Confirmation Curriculum, I got no clue. Because I learned at my, (laughs) I don't want to say it in a mean way. The only thing a pastor should need to teach the Bible is the Bible, mostly. And so, if if you're, you need the small catechism, I guess. It's a nice summary. Like, don't get me wrong. I don't want to get rid of it. But like, hear the point again. There's something about these curriculum that is just disgustingly, godlessly modern Dewey atheism. The approach to it. The way of splicing and dicing it like an evolutionist, like a Darwinist. As if we could pull apart the scriptures into all of its many separate parts and then like feed them in small pieces and you will come off the assembly line a full theologian. And regardless of what you personally think about how much you may or may not be doing it, I'm saying it's in the water. It's in the resources. It's who we are as modern people, and we should be pulling back from that. And so my first encouragement to you is don't get a curriculum. Open the Bible. Sons of Solomon prayers. Girls can pray them too. There's the Dodge of Wisdom uh, prayers as well, including Proverbs 31. Pretty key. A promise of what your life's going to look like as a woman in Christ. It's a wonderful, wonderful chapter. Um, so, you know, I don't know. Pick any New Testament epistle and read it together and say, what does this mean together? Uh, James is a great place to start. Jude's pretty good. It's really short, right? So the point is, form the habit. All right. So, I, but I, I will say this too. I have never been satisfied with, um, you know, and you can shout at me if I want, if you want. I've never been satisfied with um, grade school, high school, uh, standard education curriculum from Concordia Publishing House. Uh, it, it's a cheap mimic of whatever the, the toujours 
of the day trend for education tends to be. And I am, I'm absolutely convinced that word searches and crossword puzzles don't teach anything except for letter writing, maybe. <laughs> and so to spending money to have somebody put that together every year in different ways with like pictures of butterflies, that's what I remember. So I don't know, maybe the new one's way better. It may be way better. But what I learned pretty early was they just need to know the Bible is something they shouldn't be afraid of. That's really all they need to know. Now, with that said, if you want an awesome resource, I will say that Bible Stories for Daily Prayer from Concordia Catechetical Academy in Sussex, Wisconsin, but this particular item uh, coming out of uh, Carl Fabricius' church, which is in Milwaukee, um, but it's all run through Concordia Catechetical Academy. Um, This is by far uh, the single best Bible study, teach your kids, teach your class, teach your Sunday school. One resource fits all after the small catechism itself. This particular one is on the catechism stories, but they also have ones on Old Testament. I think there's a two or three part binders on Old Testament. There's a couple binders on the New Testament. And uh, I'll try to show you, um, you know, what they do is they they pick a Bible story that's a part of the catechism. So you basically have a pre-made lesson plan. It's pretty smooth. So... Here's my lesson plan. I got a Bible story. It's Exodus 12. It's got a bunch of questions and answers for comprehension and a summary of how to tie it all to Christ. Uh, Anybody who can read and spend 15 minutes before class can use this to teach Sunday school way better, way better than crossword puzzles. For goodness sake, crossword puzzles. So um, uh, daily Bible stories for daily prayer from Concordia Catechetical Academy. They're all worth it. They're all really good. Um, that stuff should be like just dispersed to the winds as far as I'm concerned. So, um, now my wife has used that a lot with my kids in my own life with my kids. I was always the teacher in the classroom. So with those who were confirmed before, uh, when they were going through class, I know that they were getting what I was giving and I'd go home and I know where they are in their face. So it's a little bit different, but I've got two other kids yet that still will need to be confirmed through this other process. And I'm going to be. I'm going to put my money where my mouth is or put my faith where my mouth is and and strive to do the very thing that I'm asking these other fathers to do. Um, and, uh, you know, I always kind of thought I could cheat a little and you know, have my kids sit in the classroom. I don't have to talk about it at home. That's pretty godless, I think. So um, so in that regard, again, Stephen, you have an opportunity here to really invest in your child's faith, actually and for real. And I'm suggesting you don't do it by canning them in the system, right? Don't, don't you know, put them in, grind them up, out they come, put a stole on them, flame on their head, have the bread and wine, and good luck with high school. Yeah, get, go to college, get some sports career. Yeah, I mean, instead, forming the habit every day, my God, Jesus Christ, has words to make sure I do not lose my heart, my mind, my soul in the darkness of this wicked age yeah and for your child to hear you wrestle with that will do a lot more than any particular bullet point of doctrine they can memorize because i drew it really fast and fancy with funny words on the board i'm I'm done i'm done dancing for the kids they're so bored they hate it so much they are even the ones who like it don't want to be there and it's just like there's got to be a better way than this uh djk writes this right now i've i'm trying to keep cards in different groups using these color-coded bags to help me know which group of my notes i'm taking out of my blue travel bag oh this is so cool this is a um is a smart noting question right so i would like to find a better way as i'm starting to get a lot of cards hold on let me move this on top here uh and i'm getting considering an everybody Everbook idea next, um, but for now, this is how I keep my stuff organized. So if you're not following the smart noting and or Everbook conversation, Wolf Miller and I, we're always trying to figure out how to keep information from getting lost. And I am slowly learning that you can't and that it's okay. I mean, he's probably having that conversation with his own head too on some level, but I know he's also got like, 
He's got super skills. He's got super skills. Uh, he's got an engineer's mind, and I don't. This looks like an engineer's mind, um, but I'll tell you, and I'm looking at this picture here. If you can't see it, you, there is a picture of uh, a desktop, and there are some very orderly uh, stacks of note cards with cool words on them that mean very important things to, in fact, I can see you're even stealing one of my 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 cards. It's very good. You found one of my cards. You're using it. That's great. Um and, and so they're like, but they're separated with like different color zip ties on the top of the bag so you can know which is which. Okay, so that is the question. That is the frustration is how do I know where I've put a note, especially when I'm keeping them increasingly in what look like stacks, right? They end up being stacks or piles. And if you read the Sunk Aaron's book, the answer is a, um, a Dewey Decimal system of another level, personally drawn on every note you ever make ever. And I tried that for like a week and a half. <laughs> and then I tried all sorts of stuff like this. I didn't get to these bags, but I've been putting cards everywhere. And and um, what I can say is that that's exactly what you should do. So I don't think I will recommend this picture to anybody else. But if someone else sees this and like, oh, that's going to help so much, then right now that's where you need it. You're going to get past this because you're going to have more cards than this. And what you don't believe yet, but that's kind of amazing, what you don't believe yet is how much you remember without having looked at the cards. Uh, what you don't believe yet is how little you ever have to look at the cards again. And what you also don't believe is how some cards become more than what you read on the card. Over time, as you pass through them, I'm looking at the one on the red here, if you can see it, notice all the drawn lines there. Those cards become, in fact, hieroglyphics. A full card hieroglyphic filled with stuff you can slow down, you can dig in what it says, or it can just mean a broader idea, a symbolic truth. Okay. And so as those cards begin to be created, you're going to find more and more of them that are just, it's just a better card. I don't want to file this. I don't want to type it up and send it away. I just want to see it. It's so good. Those are what in the Aaron's book would be called your, um, uh, kind of like your, your subheading cards. So start to see those as categories, the symbol or the picture card that you love is a category. And then you can let those categories exist either in a stack where you just pick it up and you flip through until you find that particular one. And you'd be amazed how fast that starts to work out. Once you're only keeping what you want and you're, you're oh, that doesn't make sense. You throw that away. This is the slip box idea is that you have a difference between the cards you are planning to throw away and the cards you know you're not going to throw away. And you don't let those two things cross paths as much as you can. So currently, again, I have now three desks that I work at in my study. One of them is what I'm calling the smart desk, which is connected to where this question is coming from. And if you want to look at that stuff, that's in the most smart channel and the elusive channel on the Discord. Um, but what the smart desk is, is a series of painted or drawn uh, geometric shapes on a desk that allow you to intentionally plan your thinking, processing, and questioning through handwritten pondering over time. And I, you know, without saying more than that, um, this thing arises the more you discard what, uh, what is not valuable, what you read and you already know, and the more what you read and you think, I need to read that again, you keep, and you let it fall underneath these hieroglyphic symbolic lead cards, you'll discover categories you didn't even know you were working with. Um, and that, I mean, I have. I have categories that I either am wanting or didn't know I was working with. My favorite category I'll just share with you is called True Lore. I love True Lore. I don't know where True Lore came from exactly, but I know this. True Lore is my stack of cards that tells me who was who in the Old Testament and who was who in the New Testament, what happened to them after the Bible. Uh, it, that, I love that little stack, my True Lore stack. I don't even go that often, right? But now I know. If I don't know who Athalia's son was, True Lore, there it is. And so, it, but how'd that happen? You know, I don't go look for a particular digibyte in the corner 
I have this desk that I'm, I'm treating like a book, a book that's my book that I will edit a journal. That's like a wide open. Uh, if you can think of the desk as covered with the one piece of paper that could be cut into a bunch of six by fours and then kind of rise or fall, uh, you know, back and forth as you want to go through the layers and you're just going to write on it, but you're going to start on the top and then think it'll just kind of grow, right? And what needs to stay in that space, you can keep pondering, meditating. You've, I've learned this, send it away, right? That can't be done with bags. The bags, see, the more you put between you and letting the information just kind of play with itself and overlap on a table in front of you, um, the more you're trying to control the chaos. And part of the beauty of the, the uh, I think it's the created order that the smartness reveals is that. God's way more in the control of the chaos than you are. And whatever you think you're doing to stop the chaos oftentimes is preventing the real forward that, that you could have. And the only reason I can say that is I know that if I were to take all of your cards in that picture and I were to like take them out of the bag and put them right where they are, and then I were to have something fall on them so that they just slid a little bit. I know you'd be able to put them back together like this. You wouldn't have any trouble. Even if they were kind of mixed up, you'd put them together really quick because it's in your head already. The framework is in your head already. You just need the right hieroglyphic trick to see where you're going to go. But then on top of that, as it spread, I would see connections between the cards and begin learning things you didn't even plan for me to see or learn because information has an infinite ability to dock and the human mind is an imagination machine, right? We imagine connections between things. And so the more you block the engagement of your paper from itself by trying to control it, the less you're going to get those special nuggets of rainbow that really do fall out of the sky. Uh, I can't tell you how many awesome little things I found, whether it's for just a piece I'm writing for Mad Mondays or a story idea or whatever, that it's because these cards shouldn't ever be near each other. And if they were in a card catalog, they wouldn't be. But because I'm working with them in stacks on a desk, uh, instead they are able to uh, cross-pollinate with each other. I should mention that one desk is that smart desk. One desk is the one I really work on. So that's the one where I have like the ideas that come and go and not everything that's there is necessarily going to be kept, right? Um, I also have uh, file places where I will, I will finally put a card away uh, for, say, the year. Hopefully review it at the end of the year quickly. <laughs> um, and then I, I now have realized I just needed a workbench. So one desk I thought was a writing desk in my imagination station, kind of is, um, it's, it's actually a workbench. And that's great. So I can actually just leave stuff piled there and it doesn't even have to have a place I love this thing. I just, I just realized that. I thought it was where I was supposed to write. It's not where I'm going to write. But it is, it's where when I come into the room, I can like drop hammers and things, right? And then move stuff around, set coffee down and put my bag. And like, that's a great space to have. And to have that not be the desk I work at and to have that not be the place where my, my you know, my uh, um, Aaron's box, uh, slip box is, um, that, that's really key as well. So, but again, don't let where I'm at be where you have to be when it comes to, what Aaron's proposes, what Lumen found uh, with the smart notes, which is that the human mind is capable of guiding itself and will create frameworks for its own learning if you let it. And that paper and pen have a particular way of doing this organically that the modern mechanical world cannot do. Just believing in that, you're going to find what your mind needs right now to organize this stuff. What I'm going to suggest to you is over time, you're going to need less and less organization because you will remember based upon what the cards look like. And you will throw out the cards that you don't want to remember. And the ones you do want to remember, you will increasingly know where they are. Do I still lose a card? I lose a card probably once or twice a week. One card once or twice a week out of hundreds, hundreds, and hundreds. And what I've learned, <laughs> as, as soon as I learn it, lose it. Here's what I tell myself now. It's gotten to be a habit. It's like, oh, that means that the created order right now has something else in mind, and I'll just have to do good enough what, without what I thought 
was what I planned to be God's word at that time. Right? Like I, I need this card because I want to control my reality. If I can realize God's in control of my reality and he doesn't want me to find this card this moment, I still don't see it. Nope, it's not there. So then I must be capable in God's sight of acting without this information. And believe it or not, you, you can. You can. The number of times that's going to turn into like you really drop the ball um, well, that's going to be how lazy you actually are, I suppose. Because if you're a conscientious person, right, even if you really drop the ball, what are you going to do? You're like, I dropped the ball. I'm sorry. Right. And so, like, you're not going to let yourself do that. So explore however the information arises. But then remember, the more you segregate the information, the less you allow it to learn. The less you allow yourself to learn from it. The further away you put it, the less you get to look through it. You want to go through it regularly. These are thoughts you want to inhabit. These are ideas that you want to have be binding to you. So um, knowing for my part, you know, every step between uh, slows me down from getting it done, right? And so the more I can remove those steps, that's also kind of what I'm after. But this journey, I mean, I, don't, I, have, I have tried so many different things like what you do. I was trying cigar boxes. I was trying like a smaller cards. Uh, Everbook is, so I still use an Everbook. I would say I actually use... One, I use two right now. Um, every book is, is everlasting. It's kind of the idea. Every book is just one more way to put a flap around some interchangeable pieces of paper. And so I use every book for mostly my, my say calendar and parish resources cards. So anything that I might need in any meeting uh, about humans at church, I keep that in an every book, a separate piece. It's actually my original handmade ever book, not the, not one of the ones that's really nice that Brian has. Those are pretty cool too. But this is my, my original attempt. It's got like a Lutheran hymnal cover on the inside, a bunch of stuff. Anyway, so I use that one. I use that one almost every day. And when I'm feeling nervous, I flip through it real quick. And I remember what my real job is. No, this is actually what I'm really responsible for. It's not saving the world after all. This is nice. I can live this life. So there's that one. And then I have another one that I use, which is also parish related and basically is documents and resources for the parish, old constitutions, old meeting minutes, things like that. But after that, um, I, I have not found every book as uh, necessary for me because the small stacks work as they do. And I never need to take m- many of them with me. I do keep um, uh, paper, uh, six by four cards in my Bible, my handheld Bible that is a son of Solomon I take with me everywhere I go. So I'm always able to write and then keep things in the Bible and bring them back. And I'll use the Bible as like a, a, a short file folder for some things sometimes. Um, but again, the stacks just kind of, they allow themselves to fall and come and go wherever they might go. Just before the show, I was digging through a stack that is, is one of my most enduring stacks. Uh, it's somewhere where I put my absolute favorite cards. And when I really am like, okay, Jonathan, I just, I'm not even sure what I should do next. It doesn't have a single to do in it, but everything in there reminds me in some way of, of my baptism, honestly, and what it means to stand as a Christian. And so I was looking through it and I found five cards, five cards in this stack of 25 cards that I've had there for a week and a half. And I realized they need to be over on my other desk, my workbench, because they're going to tell me what I want to do with that workbench next. They're actually a plan. I, I mean, they're, they're literally a blueprint for the next idea I have for what to do with the workbench, which I've been trying to figure out what it was for a couple of days. And there they were. I'd already done it somewhere else and I just had to wait to find it again through going through the system that generally I engage and I find it's enjoyable learning process. It's, 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 Aaron says it in the book. It's unbelievable. Uh, you won't believe that you can just learn, <laughs> but that's in fact what it is. And uh, if there's a, if there's something that I'm fighting against in this, in my own heart, that might be what you also, as you try to categorize and keep things so separate is the need to publish. 
is not just a matter of people who actually publish books, but we live in an age where we just don't believe information is valuable unless you can publish it. And that's the lie you want to fight against a little bit here, that information is valuable because it's true. Before you give it to somebody else, because it's there in front of you, it's a gift of God to you and it is true. It is valuable in and of itself. And as opposed to seeing it as something that I can profit by, right, that I can use it to get something out of it. So for me, the Lord, I think, is kind of purifying my heart on this matter a little bit in learning that knowledge should be given away, right, as much as possible. Um, and so, uh, you know, the... the uh, Try to think of it. Talk them into its um, uh, copyright is is built into this idea, right, of an open source idea. But it's bigger than just that. It's bigger than just that. Uh, it is again to believe that the Lord is in charge of creation. Jesus is in charge of creation, and so He never lets creation get out of control so much that it will harm your actual Ten Commandment, Lord's Prayer, creedal life in a real, like, damaging way. It'll only instead temper and try you. And what that means is that even should all of your cards burn down and you lose all the information you did, your entire life's worse gone. It's just, it's just a foretaste of the feast to come, right? It's just, it's just a piece of your own death come early, and that's okay. And the moment you can, like, be okay with that, you're going to care less about how you segregate your cards in terms of so I can find them perfect later and be more about, okay, so here's this pile what's in it. Because it's, I left it here, and I put it in this order, for some reason, and at this point, with thousands of these cars starting to show up around here, I don't remember all of them. And then I find them like, wow, I'm so glad I thought that. I'm glad I get to think that again. And that's the point, right? While you're doing the like the, this online, you don't get that option. You don't get to think it again, right? It's pretty tough to do. So uh, I hope that helps a little bit with the smart note stuff. I love that uh, as a as an idea. That is definitely not what I'm here for. And you know, I, I've decided I'm I'm not here to be your your guru um, on self help, although. I have no problem sharing with you my own journey on that matter. Um, I just, I'm not going to write a book on it per se. Although I can't say that book writing. I don't want to talk about book writing. I hate book writing, but I am working on some. So don't worry about it. Uh, <laughs> Ryan, thanks for the super chat. He says, can you put the blue light warning into biblical language? Is it the danger pharmacia? I think you know, this is good because pharma pharmacia as a biblical word, um, it overlaps, right? Uh, and so now pharmaceuticals as a reality, are connected to what the Greeks would have thought of with pharmacia. Um, but you're, you're also saying that it was a form of magic back then, right? It's like alchemy. And that's where I'm like, it kind of is, isn't it? A little bit. There's a lot of unseen going on. Uh, and so I don't know. Um, but the, if honestly, Brian, uh, you to me, it's idolatry is the word. You're going to sit and stare at a talking image for three hours. <laughs> I just, the more I look at it, right? I don't, I don't, I don't know. Um, it's not that you can't look at a picture, I don't think, right? But again, look at someone who's watching the news, nightly news, 6 p.m., they go in, they turn it on, they might not even look at it, but that head, that light, it sits there as an icon, an image, and it talks. And this talking image tells you things. And whether you're listening or not, you're hearing them. And whether you're resisting or not, it's moving you because that's how language works. So that's the language I've got for it is that it's, it's a form of idolatry. Now, uh, Everything that was a form of idolatry in the Old Testament in terms of worshiping nature is something that carnal man can't avoid, right? And that also is something that redeemed in Christ must be seen anew. So hence, like, like the idol is not the metal crucifix, right? The idol would be to worship the creation rather than the creator. And then that's where, you know, watching TV is not of necessity immediately worshiping creation rather than creator, 
But if everything's worship all the time, which is increasingly something I believe about just like human existence, that we're always looking for fear, love, and trust in something, right? And the more you're looking for fear, love, and trust in this talking machine, um, and the more that it's not talking about Jesus at all, in fact, it's telling stories in worlds where Jesus does not exist. Uh, Avengers is a story in a world almost without Jesus, and the only time he shows up, he's a curse word. Huh? Um, strange, that. Um, anyway, so you hear what I'm saying? Uh, I, I don't know. But the pharmacia, the pursuit of magic, um, I think we have a lot of these. I've had a quest in my heart, Ryan, to, to discover the American pantheon, uh, to put together an actual list of American gods and figuring out where they are and what they are, where their worship centers are, because they're not putting up statues like we think they would, right? Although that bull outside of the New York <laughs> Stock Exchange, look at it. Um, so um, figuring out what we're really worshiping, not so much so I can like decry everybody, say, get off the internet. But more again, so that as we're engaging in this wasteland, we're living among the Philistines. Well, we don't want to start worshiping their gods. Right? We don't want to actually be just having their high places in our homes. And I would suggest that the place where that's happening is your television, whether or not it is the television particular, as, an, as a medium. Certainly a world in which we controlled an in-house network TV would be a different place. But right now, what is it? What is it, right? Right now is a preacher. It's a preacher of the world. Uh, Sarah says this, $26, just a very unique number, Sarah. A dollar for each of my new Greek flashcards. That's really cool. Uh, thanks for the encouragement. You're, you're totally welcome. And I can't wait to see what comes of this. Yay. Yay for learning Greek. Um, cool beans. It is 1121. We have gone over my standard time. Any questions that I have not seen or including Super Chats I have not seen in the side? Hold on. Did I just pass one right here? There's one right here. I can do this one. Jedi uh, Anakin Cringewalker says, I've had a thought of the word uh, on the word harpazo often translated as rapture, there's an alt translation, ooh, rape, uh, maybe we are in the rapture, the church losing her purity in recent centuries of the world, ah, caught up in the air, it's, it's, off the cuff, I'm not going to say much, I'll say that it's a place where the lack of clarity in eschatological things increases, the cloud that Jesus ascended into returns. And what happens when it returns? Well, we're not really sure. Uh, we know it's going to be like everyone sees it. We know our bodies are going to be changed in the blink of an eye. We know the dead are going to rise first and be cut up. You know, stuff like that, right? Um, to try to push that back, I don't know. I think that's a bit a bit much. Um, although, it would be interesting to see how the word rapture and rape come together etymologically from harpazo. And that's where then, you know, more interesting also than either of those words, rapture or rape, is where else is the root of harpazo used? Where does that come from? What's it used for in Greek culture um, or in Jewish culture, uh, particularly in Greek-speaking Jewish culture, which tends to be the, the language of the New Testament? So finding out how that word got brought into Israelite usage will help you know more of what Jesus is talking about. That may have been done. My guess is it has, it, and it's going to have something to do with that it will be this unexpected turning moment where everything changes, um, which, you know, yeah. I, I, uh, uh, I'm going to take that word off the screen, though. It makes me uncomfortable in this day and age of, uh, you know what I'm talking about. What a world we live in. Let's see. Is there anything on my list of I want to talk about this that I didn't talk about that I can still throw at you here? False laws are not laws. False laws are not laws. The sword is impartial. You do not seek justice by obeying evil's boastful demands. It's hmm, interesting. Um, I said this one last week again. Why is it that sci-fi always concentrates on both bad and good stories, but the sci-fi people who sell you stuff only concentrate on the good stories? Who are you heeding? Who are you heeding? 
Now, right now, you're listening to me, so obviously you're hating me. Well, thank you. Appreciate the, that. And you want to support me on Patreon while you're at it? But who are you hating and why? And what is it that if, if it went away, you would be mad? Let me suggest to you that that's the unseen reality you most need to trust. Huh? Who are you hating? And what is it that if it were taken away, you would go mad? That's an unseen reality that when you, uh, when you put your framework back into that, or I'm not saying you don't believe it as a Christian. I'm saying when you put your framework back where your faith is, when you lear- hear what James says, he says, don't be a hearer who doesn't do, not because you need to justify, but because you are justified. So get on the race, you know, get on the fight, beat your body and put it under control as one who knows. What is it? Brian said it to me recently. Like, I'm, I'm kind of convinced we're just supposed to work ourselves to death. Yeah, yeah. Run toward the tomb. And to some extent, run toward it, believe, and you can't get there. I mean, I'm not saying jump in front of a bus. I'm not saying put the Lord to the test. I'm saying trust what he has said. And you're not going to die till the appointed time. So why are you afraid? Why are you afraid of not passing on the, on, the, on the torch? Why are you afraid of the world going crazy and saying men aren't women? Why? Your God is the God of Israel, Jesus of Sabaoth, the, the one who kicked the devil in the face and nailed his tongue to the cross. And he's risen. And you're immortal now. And no matter how long he may seem to be, today's got enough trouble for its own. The water sealed it. There's nothing to question. The food? Go get some. It feeds it. And the fact that this is Christianity is a truth that will endure far beyond the end of this show or the United States of America or even even this entire universe. I'll catch you all next week. Rock on. Was that worth a dollar? Click the Patreon link in the show notes to sign up. Pretty please?